The Bob Murphy Show, episode 42. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, Bob Murphy here. First of all, my apologies. I know several of you noticed there was a snafu. I uploaded just one half of the tracks originally for episode 41, my interview with Carl Smith. So as you're now hearing this, which is the next episode, I think everything should be all flushed out from the podcast feeders and whatever. But yes, there was a brief period when I realized I uploaded the wrong file. I was going to try to play it cool, guys. I was going to say, no, no, no. This is like an Andy Kaufman thing. That's avant-garde. I'm just going to show one half of the conversation because that's really a metaphor for the corporate media. Is it not only giving you one half? Or I was going to make a joke and say, if you subscribe to the Bob Murphy show, you get the full benefits. You get to hear both sides of it. But no, I just screwed up. And I, I want to be clear, it was not my technical team that screwed up. It was just I upload the wrong file. So entirely on me. The buck stops here. I own it when I make a mistake. For this upcoming interview, so I'm going to explain the background when it starts. What, what happens is, though, I am live with someone. I'm in the same room with the guest who's Donnie Gebert. And so I'll tell you who he is in that capacity. But what I wanted to say up front is we talk about a lot of things, but Donnie's book is called A Direct Republic, colon, The Null Hypothesis of Politics. So it's available on Amazon. It's 99 cents if you get it on Kindle. So it'll, of course, have links and stuff too um, in the show notes page here. But I just want to say that up front because we talk a lot of, about a lot of stuff before we build up to that. But that's clearly the news you can use. That's what he wants people to uh, get out of this. And that's that's what he's um, trying to contribute to the world is, is his book, a direct republic. And the, the subtitle is, or the catchphrase is how to automate a legislature. All right. And it's, trust me, it's, it's, he, he's thought deeply about a lot of these things and it's, I at least want you to hear where he's coming from or give him a chance. Last thing is the audio in this interview also is a little bit off and that's long story short, it's because recording live and it, his mic was picking me up and it just, Anyway, it's it's a bit tricky, so we did the best we could with various constraints. But I think it's definitely worth, um, you know, you can it's entirely listenable if that's a word. And so, uh, hope you like it. So here now is me introducing Donnie to you folks while he was sitting in front of me. Hope you like it. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Bob Murphy Show. With me today is a special guest, Donnie Gebert. And also, what's special about this episode is it's the first one that we're doing where the guest is in the same room as me. And so, oh, wow, lots, lots of firsts on this one. So the best thing I can do here in terms of introducing Donnie, and I'm going to give him a chance in a minute here to talk about his background in his own words. But I think for you folks to understand, like, who the heck is this guy and why is he on Bob's show? Let me just explain. So when I lived in Houston, a few, do you remember what year this was? Uh, 2016. Okay, so 2016, and Donnie reaches out to me, lives in Austin, and uh, has a lot of, you know, he, he knows how to 
he's got ideas for liberty, right? He knows how to do it. He's he's read read the classics. He's read David Friedman. He's read Caster. He knows he's and he's got certain you know he he knows the missing pieces here to the for the puzzle. And I get a lot of emails like this, folks. I'm not going to lie to you. That's one of the hazards of my profession. And most people, it's either stuff that's like, yeah, like you know, that's basically what so and so already said, or it's like, yeah, this guy could be crazy. And something about Donnie that said I should meet this guy, and just in case he's really hit on something important. I don't want to be the one who didn't pass it along the chain, as it were. So he came, met with me, just a fascinating guy, talking about all sorts of stuff. We met at a restaurant in uh, Houston, and then I spent some time trying to figure out how does Donnie get his insights to the broader community. Again, I don't know that it's the magic bullet, but it was the kind of thing where I just thought I need to pass this along. And, you know, it's like uh, somebody comes to comes to you and says, I think, Senator Palpatine might be uh, a Sith Lord and you got to let make sure Yoda knows about it on the Jedi. You know, you got to you got to let him know. Right. That's good. That kind of thing here that I, that he, that I get. got important intelligence that the the free market, uh, free society community needs to know. And it just wasn't working well. People weren't doing much with it. And so then I said to him when I started the Bob Murphy, so I said, Donnie, give me some time. Let me build up trust with the audience and I'll bring you on at some point. Well, now is that time. So with that, uh, and also like I say, folks, I mean, I think he's got some great insights, but he's an interesting guy. It might be, I hope you appreciate this, Donnie. Did you ever see that the movie UHF with Weird Al? A long time ago. Okay. Well, you know, the, the, what's the guy's name? Michael Rich, the guy who was Kramer on Seinfeld, right. how he came in and he like, like saved the, the network you might be that for the Bob Murphy show. You might just like this out of the box, <laughs> put some in, you know, some improbable character in this role. And all of a sudden the kids love him. I'm just going to teach everybody how to vote like a Sith Lord. That's, <laughs> that's all. That's so, really all. Okay. So at that, with that sort of strange introduction, let me turn the mic, the reins over to you here. Diane. So just give them a little bit of a back. Cause I know we're going to get into some deep stuff and people are going to wonder, how does this guy even know what he's talking about? And I know one of your trademarks is you're going to say everything that you mentioned, go look it up. You know, this isn't, you know, it's classified information, but still, you know how people are given your background that might help them give more credence to the stuff you say. So can you just give us a brief background of your strange career? Okay. So uh, my first four years I joined the army, I was ammunition logistics. I was trained by chief warrant officers. And one of the things you'll, you'll get at is, the value of an apprenticeship throughout history doesn't necessarily relay much in the military. We just pass each other information as fast as we can. We don't, we don't value that information. We just pass it along. So I learned at a young age. Let me stop. When you say we don't value the information, you mean like it's not your job to evaluate whether it's important? Think of it like intellectual property. My chief warrant officers at no point were looking at me thinking, I'm trying to get as much money out of this kid before I give him the keys to the castle. It was completely the other way around. The only reason I'm here today is to make sure you don't grow up stupid. So here's how to do this. Here's how the ammunition, here's how the ammunition supply point works. And it's basically just a warehousing operation. It doesn't matter that it's ammunition. It's warehousing. It's Amazon light. So that was my first job. And then what, what years? Oh, that was uh, 95 through 99. Okay. And that was the end of the, the war. The, the, there was a big drawdown in 99. There was really no, nothing interesting. So I went to the national guard and my national guard unit was covered with special forces and special operations guys. So even though I was a part-time infantryman, I was getting a full-time education and how does the army really run? And then 
the special forces mission is to bring in politics to the military. They're going to go in and train the indigenous population. So that portion of my career was really weird. Most national guard careers are garbage. And mine was literally spectacular. It was not just, I was trained by green berets on how to be some national guard infantryman, but my unit was the first of the 109th. And in world war two, they got slaughtered. Like it wasn't because the commander was an idiot. It's because everybody following the commander was an idiot. Mm -hmm. So the rule there was you might be 22 years old kid and I might be 38 years old in the Green Beret and you are going to get all the information that I have. The same way the chief warrant officer was trying to teach me to do logistics, the Green Beret also same way. Here's how all of this information works. You are the, the whole purpose is to understand the whole battlefield, because if you don't, you'll just be another dead one on it. So. Then I was 22 like this were I had two really good experiences in the military before I was 22. So then I trade, I, I went back into the Navy. I said, okay, I'm going to be active. I, I don't necessarily want a special force mission. I want to go in the SEALs. I want to be a shooter. I went in as an electronics technician because you have to have some sort of job that goes into that way. So let me just, so at 22, you wanted to become a Navy SEAL? Right. I was, well, I, yeah, I was 22 years old. I'd done my first tour and I was, uh, I was done my first tour. I did my national guard tour and then I was on my way into the Navy. So let me ask just for everybody's heard that phrase, but what, what is the process by that? So like it's you, you apply for it and then they vet you and, or does, does somebody tell you at some point you should really go apply to this? You're, um, well, basically all the, the special forces guy in my unit and all the people who were training me as, as part time, I was getting really good training. They're like, you might want to go back active duty. Like, you know, you're kind of too much trouble to be on the civilian street. Right. Go back in the military. You're already kind of, you understand the world. You might as well go do it. So, um, basically it's a lot of working out and I got like, by, by surgery number four, I realized I wasn't going to make, I wasn't going to Coronado. Mm -hmm. Surgery five, I was absolutely certain I wasn't going. Surgery six, seven, eight were just momentum. Now, you mean at the point where they were putting adamantium into your body? Or uh, well, what, what, I, what were the reasons for these I have all kind, um I had four hernias and uh, a ganglion cyst on each wrist. So, uh -huh. he, like, when you're trying to do push-ups and you can't bend your wrist because you have a cyst literally in your wrist... Mm -hmm you start doing pushups on your fists. Like right. you, you don't get to stop. You have to start doing workarounds. So, uh, four, four hernia surgeries, two hiatal, two inguinal, like at a certain point, you're just busting. Like you're not can, going. Can you give us an idea? Like what, what is the, the regimen? Like just to, are you talking, you were training to go to the tryouts or you're just like, this was no, like, yeah, I was training to go to beds for two years. I was doing all kinds of, I was torturing myself 6,000 calories a day, Lots of running, lots of running with a rock, lots of push-ups, but I just kept busting open. Like right. it, it wasn't going to happen. So six years in the Navy doing electronics. It wasn't necessarily grand, but one of the things that you learn in the Army is it's called S6. It's the communications. Radio and radar on a ship are very thorough, mm -hmm. whereas in the Army, you will learn one radio system, and that will be the system that you learn. So the communications area of the military is is where all the information is passed. So after my time in the Navy, I wasn't going to be a SEAL. I went back to the Army because I liked it better, and I went into military intelligence. So now I spent a couple of years as a logistician. I spent a couple of years part-time getting trained by Special Forces. I went into the, to the Navy to be a SEAL, trained that way, hung out with those guys a lot, and then ended up being an electronics technician, learning all the communication space. So this is like an S4, an S3, and an S6 tour for anybody who knows the Army. Well, then I went back into the Army as S2. 
That's that's the intelligence portion. This is functionally how you build an officer in the middle. Like if you if you're trying to build a major and those things aren't easy to build, this is the tours that they go through to get all this stuff done. And I was just kind of self-directing my own career based on what was the biggest bonus, what was the military going to give me the next time, right? Mm. And that's kind of part of where I'm at with my career is a case for government waste. There's no reason that I should have been allowed to surf the DOD for all of these different jobs and different experiences. It was great. I had a mm-hmm. great time. But that, you know, anybody who's in the market understands that that's cost ineffective. They got, I did two, two combat tours, one in the Navy, one in the Army. That was it. The military spent like $4 million on me. How are they going to get that money back for, how does somebody justify that? And it just, it gave me a lot of insight in, how the military actually runs because you can read the posters all you want, but nope, I went there and did it. And no, it doesn't run like anything of the posters. Mm -hmm. And then they dumb me off in intelligence where I got to put the big puzzle together. Like, okay, wait, I've been there. I know how to do that part. I've been there. I know how to do that part. What's wrong with this part? Why doesn't this part ever talk to this part? You know? So I was able to understand the intelligence world a little better because I had three other jobs and, and I understood what the requirements are. And then I was out. And I'm like, how is that war still on? You know, I'm an intelligence analyst. How is that war still on? So I'm kind of rambling now. You go ahead and redirect where you want. But I just ended up going through the military for 19 years. Wesley Clark is on TV with a 10-year plan for seven countries. That was eight years ago. And we still don't have any of those seven countries in anywhere state of sane, civil, whatever. So... Uh, functionally, my career was just really interesting. I ended as an intelligence analyst. I understand a lot. We'll get into the other stuff, but mm-hmm. you know, my self-study was actually just as good as my military study. And my military study is literally to the tune of a lot of money. So when you, I'm just curious, when you say the military spent $4 million on you in what? Government accounting office numbers. But when you spent, when you train a soldier to be a logistician and then I go and get another job, you have to replace that logistician. So then I went and did another job part-time, got trained, over-trained by SF guys to do a job that I never functionally did. Then I went to the Navy, was an electronics technician. They got one deployment out of me for six years. And then I went to the Army. They got one deployment out of me for seven years. And I got trained in a whole other, every time, every Mm -hmm. time they doubled down on spending more money. And like I was telling you before, I I probably have about a quarter million dollars of just plane tickets. Somebody Mm -hmm. sent me somewhere to look around and not be dumb. Now I'm going to learn on my, I'm going to learn on somebody's dime. A lot of people who have gotten to travel, they recognize that travel is a really good experience builder. I got a quarter million dollars in plane tickets. I'm for free just because I was in the department of defense. Mm-hmm. So you can redirect from there. I'm just, uh, I'm coming to this from, I'm an intelligence analyst. I know how to solve a problem. I don't, I don't do ideology. I do methodology, mm-hmm. strategy, tactics. This is how you fix a problem. Not this is how you find a way to cry about a problem. Right. We're, we're only talking methods and we're not talking ideas at all. Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, none of that really matters for anything I talk about. Okay. So let's, why don't we first give some red meat to the listeners? Do you have any like cool Navy SEAL stories? Oh no. Like, well, the cool, like I never got to go to Bud's, but there was a, um, a friend of mine was staying at my house and some victim, literally, like I got woken up four thirty in the morning. Some lady is screaming 10 feet from my head, but she's in the apartment upstairs. So my wife wasn't next to me. My first wife wasn't next to me. And I'm like, Oh man, is my wife in the living room and my friend attacking her? Like, this mm-hmm. is how I'm being woken up four thirty in the morning. Right. I open the door. My wife and my friend are looking at the ceiling and I'm like, okay, it's not us. Who is it? 
two minutes later, Jake and I were upstairs, guns, guns out, ready to do that. And we're, we're all good. You know, it was all, um, he was, he was on top of her, but he, you know, she wasn't bleeding. She wasn't naked. He wasn't murdering. He wasn't raping. He was a child with a girlfriend. And that was that. And it's the kind of thing you don't end up giving yourself credit for. Like I wanted to go to buds and I, that was just something I would do on a Thursday because it happened on a Thursday. Like that was it. But that's actually the job is go as far as you can. And then, nope, we don't need to do any more. And that came, that little story just comes later with how not to cause collateral damage. Cause I definitely could have shot that guy, but mm-hmm. there wasn't a reason. The whole goal was to protect the victim and then be done. And that just kind of comes in later down the line, but go okay. ahead. So when you're saying what, what years were you in military intelligence? So I, my last job was MI and I started in 2010 and then I got out, uh, 2015. Okay. So can you give us an idea? Like what, What's the state? Like, what kind of stuff were you? Where were you geographically? And then, what were you? Your um, I, I was most of my MI was in Fort Hood, and then I bounced around just some training stuff. But the the relevance portion of this is nothing I say is classified. Everything mm-hmm. is open source, and honestly, all the classified stuff I forgot because it was wasting it was wasted stuff in my brain. Right. So all of the real relevant stuff is open source, and you can go look anything up that I'm going to say yourself. You don't have to buy me. Mm-hmm. So that's the. The, the thing uh, that my gripe with the libertarian community is there's nobody solving the coordination problem. You don't get to talk to Tom as much. Tom doesn't get to talk to Dave Smith. Dave Smith doesn't get to talk to Dave Rubin. Dave Rubin doesn't get to talk to anybody at Mises unless somebody invites him. Mm. Who's talking to Judge Napolitano this week? Nobody's really coordinating the information. And the information is what people need to be focusing on. If, you, if you're far enough ahead in the information problem, there is no other problems. You don't have to deploy assets and resources to a problem that you got ahead of with just information and a phone call. And now we don't have to do that thing. Okay. So, and yes, I definitely want to get into that, but let's just dwell a little bit longer. So what was like a day-to-day thing when it was easy? I'm in military intelligence. Like people have an idea. Oh, you were trying to crack the Enigma code. Like, so when the period you were doing, what does that mean? So when um, a bunch of the stuff that I was doing was just work, regular army train ups look like going to NTC, which is, okay, we're going to invade Russia. Well, we're not going to invade Russia and conventional battles are kind of dumb these days because of the way they unfold because of modern technology. It's really more an exercise of the last general's war. Okay. There's laser weaponry on the battlefield. Now, how, how good do you think your tanks and planes are? Are they telling you there's laser weaponry on the battlefield? No. How do you know that? In the 90s, there was a plane called the YAL-1. It was on the Discovery Channel. And then all of a sudden, a plane that flies around with a laser in it and was vaporizing missiles out of the sky just disappears. And we don't talk about laser weaponry anymore. In an era of increased nuclear tensions and we might need more stealth bombers, all of a sudden, nobody talks about the laser weapons that are laying around for 20 years and nobody just talks about it anymore. So it doesn't exist anymore. Like, wait a minute. The whole battlefield is changing but the narrative surrounding the battlefield isn't changing, but but one known technology release at a time, not anybody sitting around going, wait a minute, there's probably laser weapons. And why are we worrying about North Korean missiles? We're not, you know, none of that really makes sense in the light of these weapons existed 20 years ago. Why aren't they being deployed as a defensive measure so we don't have to worry about North Korea now? And the answer is we need an enemy. We need an enemy. It has to be Iran. It has to be North Korea. It has to be somebody. So, so let me make sure. Think methods, not why. Yeah, let me hang on. Let me make sure the audience is getting. Are you saying 
at a certain level in the military intelligence, you guys understood like, oh, what the standard troops and okay. the public being told is wrong? Or is like even you guys were doing things that you knew this is stupid. Why are we doing these exercises? Okay, so, well, well, to be honest, the only way the military can justify it is we all go to NTC every once in a while. And that's Wait, what's NTC? National Training Center, Fort Irwin, California. It's okay. a big, it's a big, you're supposed to move your brigade across the desert as if we're going to move brigades across the desert when... Very little brigade and desert moving goes on unless somebody wants an official war. And that's not even really how war, I mean, war in Syria kind of looks real and war in we're going to move an entire tank division across this. No, not really. Not really. The, the, there's no, there's no enemy worth deploying for that measure. So you end up deploying a brigade worth of people to try and quell an insurgency and that never works. So, I mean, you've seen the surge. It, it, that just doesn't work. So I, to, to be more specific, I was looking at Kosovo and this wasn't Bill Clinton Kosovo where there was ordinance going off. Uh, my unit was looking at Kosovo for drug interdiction, just peacekeeping mission. That's all it was. Mm-hmm. An open, open source peacekeeping mission. They put it on the Facebook. We're, we're looking at EU cops and we're looking at Kosovo cops and we're looking at Serbian cops and we're trying to see what drugs are going across the border. And stuff like that. So I wasn't into economics too much until my unit started saying, what's the deal with the drug enforcement policy in Kosovo and what are options for us to help that situation? So I started the only people I was you get the same thing from Republican and Democrat literature. So you start moving outside of that and the libertarian literature starts bringing economics into the drug war. Milton Friedman explained the whole thing to me in two hours because he really, really understood it. Soldiers don't, if, if goods don't go across borders, soldiers do. Why aren't drugs going across the border? Oh, because they're illegal. Why are drugs so expensive? Because they're illegal. Cannabis should be about as, about as expensive as tomatoes, but it's not because it's not grown the same way and it's restricted. So you start seeing that the economy of a battlefield really bleeds into what the uh, analyst is going to look at. And to answer your question, generally, an analyst's job is figure out what the problem is. This is, these are all the factors on this battlefield. This is the mission. That's a bias. You figure out the factors of the battlefield and then you look at the mission and say, how do we complete the mission in light of the factors on the battlefield? And the answer is you don't complete that mission because all of the factors of the battlefield are against you. If you are economically going to lose a battle and you are told to militarily deploy, this is what a wall is on the southern border. You have an economic incentive to come here. All these immigrants coming across, they have, they're economically incentivized to come here. And then you think a military defense is going to work to stop them. You have an economic problem. You will not solve it with a military barrier. George Patton said, fix fortifications or monuments to man's stupidity. Okay. Why is that suddenly not relevant now? That mm-hmm. fixed fortification along the southern border is only going to channel your economic problem into different areas. It's not going to get rid of it. So, an analyst's job is to figure out the problem. There is no problem until you tell me what there is. I don't, you know, there's no economic problem on the border in Kosovo. There's an enforcement issue with drugs. So it, it, what you determine is a problem depends on what I'm going to look at. If you bias what I look at, then you'll get a biased solution. And that's, I think, I find the military in bias solution mode because they're not allowed. So they're not allowed to find good solutions. Mm-hmm. And then they're given missions that aren't going to work. So that, let me ask you something again. I'm just trying to get your broad worldview here Dial before in. we, so it's a pretty typical thing 
to say, um, you hear it often said that, oh yeah, the military could have won in Vietnam if they didn't have their hands tied. How do you feel on, about that kind of a thing? Or if, if you, that's, you haven't studied that. Well, what is, what is hands tied? So I, I'm going to troubleshoot David Petraeus right now. And the only reason I get to do this is because by my reckoning, he screwed up. Okay. The war is still going right now. So that to me, this is a de facto feat that David Petraeus messed okay. up because so the you're talking about the current right, war specifically yeah, in the Middle East. Yeah. Specifically, Lawrence of Arabia tried to basically he functionally got the insurgency in that area to kind of quell and rest. But then somebody else drew the lines to what the peace was going to look like at the end. The Kurds never got a country. So now there's these people that are always oscillating between the Turks and the Arabs and the Persians and always they're just people. They live there. And when you draw the lines so that you have this oscillating group of people that will just be always a thorn in someone's side, you still have the Middle East 100 years after they draw these lines. So now David Petraeus gets Iraq. And it's this little microcosm of already broken lines that have been that way for 60 years. Remember, when does he come in on the scene? Was um, he, there for, he wasn't there for the beginning, It's late 2000. Right? When I'm saying this, I mean 70 years after somebody drew the lines, David, sure. David Petraeus tries to pull this maneuver of we're going to do T.E. Lawrence's strategy inside of Iraq. Now, you've already got the macrocosm screwed up because the lines were never intelligent. Mm -hmm. Now he tries to deal with an insurgency inside of Iraq. There are, of all militaries, that, like this is just organizational modeling. There are three portions, combat, combat support, and service support. When you are dealing with an insurgency, everyone is in the service support sector. Everyone. That is your entire economy now. Insurgency is the entire economy is the service support sector. And then you have combat and combat service or combat support troops that you're trying to find. Those are your high value targets. When you let, say, let me make sure the audience isn't because you're saying in insurgency, the local population, like they hide them, they feed them. They like that's where they get the ammunition from. Every 7-Eleven is a foods resupply point. Mm -hmm. Every 7-Eleven. It's not you. Eat, you don't even have to hide that you're a food resupply point. You leave the sign out front. So you're saying what went on in Vietnam? My understanding of any insurgency to include Vietnam is you either genocide because you have to cut off the material support to the combat and combat support troops. So you have to genocide. I'm not advocating for that. I'm saying that is the only option I know of to get rid of that economic activity that is mm -hmm. supporting everybody there. Or you can go home. Like mm -hmm. you can just go home because you realize if I'm dealing with a full-blown insurgency and every and the and the baseline economy of Iraq is my service support sector, I have failed. I am in a military state of failure. I cannot do this. I go home. Mm -hmm. The third option is what America pretends they could do. We're going to put enough troops in there to turn the whole place into 1984. But they have home court advantage. So the minute you turn your head, it turns into 1776. So then you have to surge and turn it back into 1984. And you can't search forever because you can't afford to search forever. So you go home. And what do they do? As soon as you leave, they turn it into 1776 again. It's exactly what you and I would do if other people were here. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't know this had David Petraeus not done this. But when the entire economy of a country, just like in Vietnam, just like in Iraq, all of those people are the, are the material support that's happening. You can't beat that. And they, the Vietnamese knew it. They would mouth, they'd get mouthy about it. Um, Ho Chi Minh was really good with coming up with phrases like, we're going to be here for 10,000 years. I don't know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Stuff like that. It was, you don't understand. You're never going to get your way here, Americans. The American foreign policy will kill us. We cannot afford to live 
under American foreign policy, so we're not going to. Yeah, okay, great. So where I was going with that is I've heard two different reactions. So clearly the U.S. government is not achieving its stated objectives very effectively. They said, oh, we went over for these reasons. Had they told Americans up front, oh, Afghanistan is actually going to be the longest war in U.S. history, right. people would have said, well, hell no, we're not doing that. Or they would have said, do a limited thing, take out the Taliban or you know, whatever, take out the guys who were involved with 9-11. They would not have supported what transpired. So I've heard from libertarian types, I've heard two explanations. One is just to say, oh, yeah, government's incompetent. See, they can't get anything. They'll look at all the money they wasted. Another one is to say, this is what they wanted. The whole point at some level, if you went up high enough, was we want to have never-ending war. We want to have a, a, a pretext to have our troops over there, whether it's moving poppy, whether it's right. just taking over oil, you know, various reasons. Yep. If, if we're going to eventually go to war with Iran, it'd be helpful to have all our stuff over there. You know. Yep. And so of those two things, in other words, someone say, it's not that the government's incompetent. Look at our forces. If they really wanted to do X, Y, Z, they could do it. They're losing on purpose. I'm certain that everybody is right. Okay. <laughs> so here's how this works. No matter what the political talk is, if you're going to go to war, that going to war is a process. It is not an opinion. It is a bunch of people and a logistical matrix that is going to perform a Rube Goldbergian act of glory. Mm-hmm. You are going to set a chain of events in motion. It's going to happen. That chain of events acts like a schematic on the wall, like a fire escape plan. It's not an opinion. You have a plan. I have a plan. Some people die in the burning building with your plan. Everybody gets out safe with my plan. We use my plan. If you philosophically start trying to troubleshoot people's plans, it doesn't work like that because it literally doesn't work like that. Your feelings about the fire escape have no functioning on the fire escape whatsoever. So I'm just the lowly staff sergeant, but I'm absolutely certain that when you plan an offensive, the first thing you do is you plant the off switch. It's this is my objective. This is my de facto state of done. My or the business world calls it the definition of done. The military, it's this is our objective. We are going to this point. We are going to stop, turn around, get, bring our shit home at this point. Mm-hmm. When you leave the house and you don't have that installed, that's it. You're probably on Mr. Toad's wild ride and you're mm-hmm. not coming back until you're 25 trillion in the hole because there really isn't an objective. And David Petraeus operates from a bias that Ike didn't. Ike had to know his steel supply from recycled cradle to European grave because bottomless checkbook or not, he could not purchase any more steel at a certain point. The Germans weren't going to sell him theirs. He wasn't getting German steel. He had a finite. So David Petraeus had a bottomless checkbook his whole career, his whole career. This is a fundamental bias. You're going to show up in Iraq. You're going to have 12 guys in a house. You're going to have to send 60 guys into that house to root them out because it's very dangerous work. Five to one is U.S. military doctrine is five to one in urban combat. So statistically, you're going to lose three or four guys trying to root these 12 guys out. You'll probably have eight more wounded. And then you're given uh, the honest military complex, uh, military industrial complex guy walks in and says, you drop a $200,000 piece of ordinance in that house. The life insurance policy on the first dead soldier was 400000 so why not drop the ordinance? And, and it makes perfect sense. You save four, you know, now you're, now you're proving metrics. I am saving lives by using ordinance, except when you drop that JDAM on those 12 guys, you created 200 insurgents. 
So now we have justified because of the collateral damage. And right then now, right. somebody's you brother make, just got killed. If so he's you gonna, make yeah. one mistake with a JDAM, your shit goes what's, all wrong. Which JDAM stand for? Oh, a uh, Joint Direct Attack Munition. It's a bomb. It's a GPS guided bomb. It's going to hit that house. It's it's going to do the minimum amount of collateral damage that we can do. However, it's going to be way more damage than the mission can tolerate. You're going to make more insert when you take your skin out of the game and you're not going to sacrifice your soldiers and you are going to sacrifice their lives. You're going to breed more insurgents than you ever kill. So at a certain point, the question is, what was the mission here? Because we are not doing this correctly. If we were, we'd be done already. It's not an argument. Oh, I think it was Wesley Kirk said we'd be going through seven countries in 10 years. Okay, we're eight years past the 10 year plan. That one never went into effect. We never got past country number two, unless you want to count all the covert stuff going on. And I don't even know about that. Like, so this is an interesting riff. So just for people who don't know. So Wesley Clark famously said in public, you know, that, oh, yeah, so-and-so. And I looked and there, there was this plan for all the countries we were going to invade. It's on the Internet. You yeah. can verify. And yeah, we'll put Yeah, I'll put it at the show notes page, folks. So this is, again, BobMurphyShow.com slash 42. And. So a lot of people are like, holy cow, you know, they, they, you know, they, whoever that is, knew ahead of time what the plan was. And of course, that's not how it was sold to the public. But your point is, even if that was the plan, they're behind schedule or it's taken a while. So, you know, I'm going to get cheeky in house. I'm a soldier. I get to get mouthy with other soldiers. At what point do we demonstrate that our the leadership has failed and you have to replace them? The, mm-hmm. Like, I'm not being pejorative. I'm not trying to get me angry with anybody. I'm saying... My understanding is that the reason David Petraeus isn't a five-star general and is a four-star general is because he had a baseline bias and he didn't fully understand all of the components of the battle space. It was very – at a certain point, that war became purely economic. And if you only have the military to solve this – and he didn't really, but his primary tool to solve the problem was the military. At a certain point, the hammer is, is driving more holes in the sheetrock than it is driving nails – and then you have to put your own soldiers back on the battlefield to try and limit the casualties, which is never a popular event. Mm-hmm. And then, never mind any of the good intentions or the miscommunications, now you have tons of people trying to pray in the battle space. There's military contracts there. So any place there's military contracts, there are people trying to get military contracts. Are these people bad people? No, not necessarily. But the way the system is set up is the military industrial complex will exist. Some weapons manufacturers are not allowed to sell their wares overseas because we don't want them dropped on Americans. Well, now these people have an economic case for war because now they're not allowed to sell their wares anywhere except to the government. The government will only buy them and won't let them sell them anywhere else. So I'm not trying to make excuses for the complex. I'm trying to say that the manner in which we engage in war is so fundamentally screwed up right from the art of war. Sun Tzu would not approve of any of this nonsense. So why, you know, the first thing you're doing is looking for the state of done. Sun Tzu says, no, you know, rule number one, you must know where you stop. Otherwise, you don't know how to calculate your plan. You don't have a budget because you don't have an endpoint. If you don't have a budget, you're probably going to lose because you're going to. David Petraeus can only throw so much money at a problem before he starts creating more insurgents than he's than he's getting rid of. So in contrast, in World War Two, regardless of what the morality or, you know, strategic wisdom of it was, it was pretty clear what success looked like. Like the allied commanders, they knew what their job was. They could either do it or fail. And even then Ike said they shouldn't have dropped the bombs. Like he said, Harry Truman shouldn't have dropped the bombs. So 
even then, yes, there was clearly defined goals of we won't have to, we will have freedom of movement on the planet and the empire of Japan will cease to be a functioning military that can screw with us. Therefore, we are good. Anything, any political goals and, you know, getting them to sign treaties and stuff Mm -hmm. after that, it doesn't really matter. Like that's, that's the formalities when Japan doesn't have a military that can do anything to you anymore, then you're, then you're done. And they all kind of knew that. So it, when you're, you can't just throw money at a problem. And that's exactly how everybody in the military operates. That's how that budget is set up. It's screwed up and it's why it costs so much. So it's not supposed to cost that much, but it does. And the reason it does is because we've decided we're going to throw money at a problem and not lives, which is okay. Except at a certain point, you can't perform what you would to do because that think of it like applying the six Sigma process to war. At a certain point, that muda there is someone's going to die because you're in a dirty, in a dirty business. Mm-hmm. So, and, and even then you're going to have errors. So when your error looks like death, you, you have to tighten that up. And how do you tighten it up? You can't, you can't, you can't put us mil, um, economic policy in Iraq and then expect it all to work out. It's just not going to work. You have to. You go ahead, Mo. Okay, so let me, again, revisit. I'm trying to think of different ways of coming at this. So, again, some people, the the distinction is, and these are all coming from libertarian types who think generally like us, and I'm just trying to isolate the difference. Some would say, oh, yeah, this open-ended war on terror or we're bringing freedom and stability to the Middle East, that's such a vague, amorphous thing, as opposed to defeat the German military machine, defeat the Japanese Empire military force, clear-cut here, how could anyone, but then others who are more cynical say that's the whole point. They want there to be this thing to, for perpetual flow of billions of dollars forever. They don't want it to end. So that they pick that goal on purpose, just like climate change. Right. They will, oh, global warming. Oh, there's a pause in the warming. Let's call it climate change. Like th- that's. There's a lot yeah. of corrupt money surrounding cli- climate change and there's a lot of corrupt money surrounding war. Like I said, some some business models are literally that company will come to an end if the war comes to an end. Right. So literally somebody's like, I'm not trying to I'm not advocating for any of this, but somebody's job hinges on the war continuing to go. Mm-hmm. That's not a good way. Somebody to, said that to Rand Paul on CNN right. the other day was Wolf Blitzer. Yeah, something. but think about it, the way the government is structuring the mm-hmm. payment to these. Instead of having a defined goal and say you are being contracted for 1000 pieces of ordinance and then you go back to doing something else, you can go make flying cars. You just can't make flying bombs. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not really adjudicated at all. It's you're going to be the flying bomb guys and we'll let you know when it's time for you to get paid and we'll let you know when it's time for to make more bombs. So now instead of having a short ended business model of this is your production run, then you go do something else. You have this constant government contract to, to be suckled and everybody's trying to get in there because it's literally it's guaranteed money. It's guaranteed prosperity in your business model and nobody's going to turn that down. It's perverse incentives 101. The system perversely incentives the continuation of the system, and nobody seems to functionally understand where to put a pin in it and say, wait a minute, this was the part where everything went sideways. Now we have to start from this point. We're working with a root cause. We're not doing symptomology. We're not throwing good drugs after bad. We're going to anesthetize this thing, and we're going to amputate this leg because it stinks. And then we're good. But nobody seems to be willing to do the cutting, and nobody seems to be willing to put the pin in it. And then when you try to put it in it, nobody knows how, because Tulsi Gabbard isn't going to do any better than Ron Paul. 
She's just not going to do any better. It's not personal. I don't know Tulsi Gabbard. But Ron Paul went up there for 30 years, put out, listen, if we do it this way, it's going to be screwed up. And then they went and did it that way, and it's all screwed up. And now Tulsi Gabbard is going to go up there and say, if you do it this way, it's going to screw up. Guess what's going to happen, Bob? They're going to go and screw it up again. Because nobody is really incentivized to succeed, and there's multi-trillion dollars worth of corruption flowing through a centralized Mm -hmm. point. So maybe another one last way of hitting this particular point and then we can move on. When you were looking at the intelligence that was flowing through it and you were like seeing on TV and what the generals and the politicians were saying and then knowing the tactics and strategies that were being employed, did you ever think, wait a minute, if they wanted to do that, what they should be doing is such and such. At the time, no, like you're, you're still in the machine. You Mm -hmm. are one piece in the machine. You're, you can get good information from other people, but at the end of the day, the entire department of defense does not know the right hand does not know what the left hand is doing. And if it does, it is corrupt. It is. If you have a clean communication channel in the government, it is corrupt as all get out. I will give you a direct example. Right now, Peter Strzok's wife, Peter Strzok is the FBI guy who was coming up with stuff for Trump, right? right? His wife, his legal wife works for the SEC. She's some kind of director. She's in charge. She should be, if she was doing her job today, she would be investigating Clinton Global Initiative for several securities and exchange violations in lieu. So Clinton Global Initiative is a problem. The lady who's supposed to uh, investigate it is Peter Strzok's wife. Peter Strzok can talk to Rod Rosenstein at work all day in a skiff if he wants to, but that might attract attention. They could just do it at Starbucks. Rod Rosenstein's wife is, uh, her last name is Barsoomian. She's Hillary Clinton's lawyer. So through the the bonds of holy wedlock and through attorney-client privilege, Hillary Clinton can get briefed almost anytime she wants on the investigation and what they have going on for Clinton Global Initiative. That's tomorrow. Mm-hmm. That's tomorrow there. Anyone who's out there and in, in furious about government corruption, why hasn't anybody brought that up in the last year? Because mm-hmm. nobody's going to talk about it. That's it. That, as far as I'm concerned, that's an information operation running inside the federal government on live television. And apparently you have to be a trained intelligence analyst, not a, not even an investigative journalist to find it. Mm-hmm. So literally Clinton Global Initiative. I, I now have information that may get me killed because it's, it's definitely <laughs> involves Hillary Clinton. And there it is. Attorney client privilege to her attorney. Her attorney can talk inside the inside the Department of Justice, right to a guy who's inside the FBI and the lady who's investigating her. And nobody has to testify against one another. Mm -hmm. If that's not pure corruption, I guarantee David Petraeus was not getting information like that. I guarantee it. I guarantee he would kill for information like that. Mm -hmm. And then you look at, you know, a general in the army has an awful lot to do from the time they are a lieutenant. They have an awful lot to do. When are they going to sit down and learn two schools of economics? Because if you don't if you don't know at least two, you can't compare and contrast the one that, you know. Mm -hmm. So if you don't know Chicago and Austrian, you don't know anything. If you don't know Keynesian and Austrian, you don't have a really good contrast because Chicago and Austrian drink together too often to really be objective to each other. Right, right. So. You have to understand enough Keynesian to understand how it functions. You have to understand enough Austrian to know how it functions. Chicago helps. Chicago is really cleaner. And to me, Austrian makes that last intuitive leap and mm-hmm. says, it, it, if, your, if your economy is going to remain solvent, you must then from this last known data point do X, Y, and Z. Whereas Chicago will get to that point and say, well, maybe X, Y, and Z, but we need the data. 
Mm-hmm. So that's that to me, that just that seems to be the only difference between Chicago and Austrian at all is Chicago will just cease and say, we need to collect data. And Austrian says, yes, we don't have any more data and we'll still be screwed on Tuesday if we don't figure it out. So we're going to put X, Y and Z in here because that will keep us solvent and we'll call it a theory. But it's not a theory. It's really just Rube Goldberg's success from your last known point. You know what I mean? If every process that we ever do in our life looks like a Rube Goldberg machine and you screw it up, it doesn't go through. The, the Rube Goldberg machine doesn't work. It's a de facto failure. So these processes are set up to either function or fail. And if they're set up to function, what's the difference between one model and another? And you don't get enough perspective unless you're literally just hanging out in the Department of Defense, changing jobs every couple of years. So this, you just reminded me of something I'd heard. Is it I had this idea that they were like, uh, do they do something where like, okay, they want to plot and say, okay, we're going to, you know, if, if we ever had to take over a certain, uh, you know, go to, go to war in this theater and do they have different teams like doing, okay, you know, this team tries one thing and you guys try something like you know, internal competition. Like, do they go against each other to make sure like, okay, you guys pretend you're the enemy now in this simulation to make sure poke holes in this. The military is doing that all the time. We okay. are always playing red force and blue force against mm-hmm. each other. The problem within an economy is you, that everything that's all venture capital. All of that is venture capital. You don't get anything done in the, in the real world without a budget. The military, again, it's the land of the bottomless budget. So we can get a lot of things done that are less than effective just by throwing money that you got, you know, the civilian sector has money to throw at the problem. So that's, that's what happens. So it's not that we don't get good training. It's that the training doesn't have to have a budget. And because it doesn't have to have a budget, we don't really have to focus on the proper invent enterprise environment factors of each individual task. We focus on, I mean, I'm not saying safety shouldn't be a focus. I'm saying the military has taken safety to a point where maybe the people writing the safety rules shouldn't have been in the military. They should have been accountants, Bob. Mm -hmm. They should have been accountants because you don't write safety rules for people like that when the rules, well, we're going to go to war. So the rules are going to look like physics and we can't really cloud that up with too much lawyer stuff because we'll get killed. But who's dropping the JDAMs? Lawyers. So through all of my ventures in the DOD, it's not just budget. It's the way the budget is is procured, the way the budget is mandatorily spent. All of this revolves around law. So you wrote chaos theory, you do economics, I do military. And in this middle, there's this, all of these are connected together with the law. Mm-hmm. And that is fundamentally where the problem comes from. And the law also controls the political system. So where this all kinds of, how is this military guy even, what is he talking about? This is all civilians. The civilians, every, every civilian in this country is stuck with this system. And no one's even trying to fix the system. No one. No mm-hmm. one is, there are clear and obvious flaws. Then there's just rampant fraud. Nobody's really incentivized to plug the fraud holes and no one is incentivized to stop the system at all. So you get Ron Paul trying to plug fraud holes and maybe he does it, maybe he doesn't, but they open up just as fast as he closes them. But then the systemic, this thing doesn't make any sense at all. Like you can redirect now, but I guarantee like there's, there's three ways that I'm certain the constitution is dead. Okay. Let's hang on before we, let, okay. that's a good one. But last thing, cause you keep bringing up stuff while I have you here Go for it. again, this distinction between like a sort of younger, ha ha, the government's so stupid version versus, no, there's some sinister people running it and there were a bunch of liars. When it comes to like the military budget, 
one school of thought says, look at how incompetent they are, cost overruns. They spend six hundred dollars on a toilet seat. Yeah. Another one says, no, that's the what they have on the paper. Right. They're funneling the money to all kinds of groups doing stuff that you don't even know about. Right. What, where do you come down on that? Or it, is it a little both? It doesn't matter. The system is rigged to do it this way so that mm-hmm. every every argument that can be proffered up. Um, okay. If you think about all of the processes that ever any individual, anyone listening to the sound of my voice, you all have different ways through your interaction with the government. Most of them are through a vote. Some of you are in the military. Some of you work civil service. You all have different interactions with the government. Well, you are required to do all of those things. They, they are mandatory. The, the, the money will be spent one way or the other. So now imagine every single domino in the process is a handover or some kind of systemic fraud. All of these dominoes have to go because if any one of them fails, your system fails. So the highest failure rate you can imagine, because any anything that sends the voters into the stupid bin and, and you vote for stupid, you lose. Anything that sends the voters into the smart bin, but then the system kills the smart option, you lose. When the smart option never shows up on the ballot, you lose by default. So all of these things have to go very, very right before any particular group of voters gets their gets their way. All of the voters are sitting in their own perspective houses thinking, oh, man, somebody got their way, but it wasn't me. And the reality is nobody got their way except the people who knew how the system ran to begin with. That's the fraud surface. Mm-hmm. You, Bernie Sanders, my understanding, Bernie Sanders is a two-star general. You walk in his office with a big fat check. He will say, I don't want to take your check. Let me hear about your proposal. You go into how your business is going to do great things, yada, yada, yada. Bernie, here's here's your proposal. He says, so you want to build this on the outside and you want me to help get it through all the regulatory stuff on the inside. He already knows you're going to fail. He already knows that that's going to, that's going to fail in some committee that he has no, no nothing to do with. He also knows that your procurement is garbage. He knows the one place that you have to get that one thing to make your project work. And that place is a 10-year backlog. You're not getting that stuff ever. So then he's going to take your check. Because he knows that you're going to fail on your own accord. He knows that he can he can go through the dance and make it look like he's doing all of the work that he can for you. And he's just a guy trying to make a living. He's going to take that check because he has to get reelected. So most of the congressmen spend most of their time trying to get reelected, not being effective at dealing with the system because mm-hmm. the system is set up to keep them running errands, not to actually do any of the fixing. And even if they can, the parliamentary procedure requires they gang up. And if they don't gang up, nothing will happen. Again, the, the last domino is not allowed to right. fall again. And then we're like, oh, maybe next time, campers, maybe next election. Okay. I, I like all that, and we're going to pursue all that kind of stuff. Okay. But on the narrow question, the military budget, is the, is the Pentagon wasting money, or is it they're funneling it to black ops and all these super both. weapons? Okay, both. It's definitely, it's definitely okay. both. And some of it is the... The stuff that's really nasty is probably really off the books. Like they're like the smart people in the military will just burn the records. Mm-hmm. Like they will they will launder money into the civilian world. They will be pushing it through HSBC and cartels. Really sinister people will just live in the black world all of their life and they won't care. It is that because I know because I, I can remember when I was but younger. As far as, as far as the DOD, like every day there's a black budget and somebody's killing babies. No, no, right. it's just wasteful. It's it's mm-hmm. just wasteful. They will put bodies and stuff at people because there is an ill-defined mission. The guys mm-hmm. who are there will tell you the mission is ill-defined. We're all here on a self-licking ice cream cone of a mission. We're going to do our best to not die and try to be useful. But when you're in a position 
where you have a bottomless budget, you have, you're approaching it with a bias. Mm. You don't necessarily have to understand the enterprise environment factors like a venture capitalist does. Mm -hmm. If imagine every military mission, you had to build a train up, you had to do the mission, everybody dies, all the equipment dies, but the mission is complete. What does that complete cost package go through? You built a whole training scenario. You had 40 guys go through this training scenario for three weeks. They went and they completed the mission. They lost all 30 lives, the helicopter, all of the equipment, it's all gone, but the mission is complete. What was the cost? Mm -hmm. Yes, I kill everybody in all my scenarios. Because this, because this cost analysis is not done with everybody dies, but you still get your mission. You don't necessarily look at the mission as a cost endeavor. You look at it as a mission. It's a, it's a value statement instead of a, this is not worth the cost. This objective is definitely not worth the cost if we're going to lose 30 people over it. So because you can say, if we do this, we don't lose 30 people with this kind of reasoning. Every mission always sounds good. We're always trying. We're always on defense, even though we're overseas. Mm-hmm. This is how the Supreme Court defined um, commerce. You know, if you're if you're selling tomatoes, you're in commerce. But if you're growing tomatoes and not selling them and eating eating tomatoes that you would have bought, and now you're also involved in commerce. Mm-hmm. So this is the, it's the same rationale behind a military mission is if we're saving lives, then we're not taking them. And the lives we're saving are our own, but the lives that we're taking might not be necessary anyway. So it's all twisted logic and everybody has their own perspective. Nobody has a holistic picture because they're all in the system. You have this fundamental, but you know, what, what, how's it go? When you're paid not to understand something, you probably won't. Right. Well, there you go. The, the military has a fundamental bias of we're certain that we're not trying to do harm, but we are not necessarily certain of the, of the definition of help. Mm-hmm. So we don't necessarily know if we're doing harm. And as far as the black box or off the books, you know, deep, deep off the book, I remember when I was younger and I would hear people just casually saying like, oh yeah, the CIA was running drugs and and I didn't believe, it just sounded so ludicrous. I'm talking when I was like in high school, right? back when I was still like, oh, well, the reason that Ted Kennedy supports the minimum wage is he must never have had an economics person on staff telling him what, you know, that kind of, like that's how naive I was. Right. And for people who find that hard to believe, I mean, one of the reasons for the CIA, for example, to be running drug is they could get money without having to go to Congress for it. Exactly. So it's not that they're all just sitting there twirling their mustaches. It's like, well, we could have a bunch of money coming in that's off the books. Not to mention, it's a capital in and of itself. At a certain point, you can't buy cocaine with all of the money that you have because there's no cocaine available. So if you have something that the money can't buy, you actually have a value greater than the money. Right. So they put themselves in key position. Like, it's just business. Cocaine is just business, whether you like that or not. There's lots of drug warriors who don't want to hear that cocaine is just a business and you should be able to buy it at Walgreens with an ID. The end. Mm -hmm. The end. That would take away all of the power that these cartels have. But the goal is not to take away power from people by making things legal. The goal is to, Ron Paul warned, you go to war, you're going to lose all your civil liberties. This is what happened. The American people suffered the most. They continue to pay for the enforcement of, and there's no functional reason to have a drug war at all, but every, it's going to be there tomorrow. Just like Hillary Clinton's legal escape routes, it's going to be there tomorrow. And until people start having the actual argument of this was never going to work, why are we doing it tomorrow? And again, we get back to that, those two possibilities. It's a mixture of incompetence and 
people just, you know, naive, blah, blah. But also, yeah, they like having the drug war for other reasons. Right. It's not because they don't want Americans using cocaine. Well, the one thing Scott Horton is really angry about is not assuming, don't assume that your opponent has ill motive. So I can explain everything that goes on in the government with incompetence, pure not lack of budgetary awareness, lack of environmental factors, lack of enterprise environment factors. I could explain it all with incompetence, literally. Now, are there sinister motives? Yes. Are they predominant? No. Predominant sinister motives are hard to hide and it's hard to recruit for them. So remember half of the black projects that the government runs, you're allowed. You're going to give them permission to waterboard someone. You're not going to jail for that. If you're given a mission where you're going to go kill somebody, you're going to be made immune. Hey, everybody, let's take a break from my discussion with Don and to talk about my pamphlet, Chaos Theory. This is something that is an underpinning of the kind of vision that Donnie's painting here for us in this extensive interview. And if you've never read it, well, you should. Best of all, it's free. So I will put a link. This is, remember, bobmurphyshow.com slash 42, or you can just Google it, but it's hosted for, there's a free PDF of it at the Mises Institute. Or, of course, you can get a print version as well. And that's my pamphlet, Chaos Theory, which has two essays on market anarchy, one on private law and one on private defense. All right, Donnie. Well, at this point, why don't we explain to the listeners? So how did you, so you've explained your career in terms of like your professional stuff, what you're doing job wise. And obviously we can see why it has such relevance to what we're eventually building up to here. But I mean, at some point, like I know you read Chaos Theory, you read a lot of Milton Friedman. So so when was that? Was that like when you were younger or you're in the military and then you start on your own? How did how did you get these other libertarian free market ideas? I was a constitutionalist until Ron Paul 2008. Okay, so it's not like the only when I left the Republican Party, I stopped by the Democratic Party just to make sure that that it was broken. Like Mm -hmm. I, I was a Republican, therefore not a Democrat. And I already had reasons to not be there. But Ron Paul was making more sense, more functional sense. You can say anything you want about politics, but Ron Paul was actually describing how the system worked and then showing how the system was failing. Mm -hmm. And none of the other politicians were doing that. So I'm like, yes, yes, that, yes, I understand. So it took a couple of years on my own to get there. I actually dated a libertarian female. I found one in the wild on my own. That's, (laughs) that's pretty, yes, that's a feather in the cap. And And then I started getting a hint of, man, this job is not functioning properly. I am not here to dick around. I am not here to have to hurt people. That's not my game. If we are not doing this correctly, I mean, literally, I'm an intelligence analyst. It's my job to refine the process if it's not right. But I'm almost certain that their fundamentals right. And everyone is not being trained correctly. It's not it's not pejorative. It's everybody doesn't know the definition of help. And and at this point, like I've been out of the military for 18 months and it started to bother me that the art of war was not taught. Like, why not? Why isn't it re- mandatory you reading? You mean the book. The right, classic, the book, yeah. the art of war, the classic. If we're all going to coordinate our efforts off of one thing, what's it going to be? And the answer is nobody's coordinating their efforts off of one thing at all. They're not. The Marines have a different mission. The Air Force has a different mission. Every, but the right hand does not know what the left hand is doing and it's not pejorative. It's just reality. So unless those systems are going to change, and I, I'm the I'm the school of we don't uh, we don't allow the uh, the job to beat us. We might beat ourselves, but we figure out the job, and then we figure out ourselves, and then it'll and then it will work. It won't be a matter of 
opinion. It'll be a matter of displayed competency. Yes, we know how to do this. No, we do not. If we're not doing it, why aren't we doing it? And that process is expensive and you can't necessarily expect the civilian world to do it. So you get these weird spheres of the military is in the right place with the right resources, but not necessarily certain what they're supposed to do because their methods are a little rough. Then you get the civilian world that has to fund whatever method they can get legalized, which is yet another problem. So nobody's really working cohesively and the system. And again, the one thing that everybody has in common is the system. And it is the broken thing. And no one's trying to fix that. Mm. And nobody's trying to. Ron Paul will tell you how the system is broken, but he won't say, and you need to demolish this piece or it will just continue to get worse. But the, mm. here's the vulnerability right here. So it was because of him, like his campaign, I'm assuming you're saying, and then what, that you started going and reading stuff and. Right. Well, then again, I was, my unit was going to Kosovo. Mm. So now I got Ron Paul whispering economics and policy in one ear. I still got that green brain in the back of my head saying economic or policy and military, policy and military in one sphere of existence policy and economics in another sphere of existence, and then just the military and the economics of it in the last sphere of like, okay, wait a minute, never mind government policy. Is this going to work at all? Are we just throwing good money after bad on a bad idea because we don't know what a bad idea looks like? Mm. So you you have to, like I've always found, you have to look at three different, you have to triangulate your knowledge, three different ways. You have to look at a military operation economically. You have to look at it strategically. And then you kind of have to look at the mission. Like, are we blo- are we cutting off our nose to spite our face? Are we blowing up ourselves? And are we doing this necessarily at all? And a lot of times you find out that military is not the way to do a thing. It's just not. It's either the most expensive way to do it or shortcuts have been made where we're going to drop the JDAM. And that at that point, maybe the shortcuts shouldn't be made and maybe the adult – you can't really train the average 18 year old to go into a house and shoot at people. Like it's, it's just an unnatural act. Well, those, those humans are adults. They're more expensive. They're highly trained and you don't want to risk them either. So there's a rational cost benefit analysis of how are we going to do things and why, but there's no rational basis of what is it going to cost or why, why can have any ridiculous reason. As long as the black, as long as the bottomless checkbook of the federal government can pay for it, we'll do it. Mm-hmm. Well, at that point, there's no real tether to rational reasoning of when we're going to stop. Tom says, no matter who you vote for, you get John McCain. No matter how bloodthirsty or not, John Bolton's the guy who's going to make the decision. So mm-hmm. like, OK, if John Bolton's going to make the decision, why are we even talking about this? Like it's a like it's a, a discussion to be had. The itchiest trigger finger around is the guy who's doing this. So now we either have to prevent him from doing what he wants to do. Or we're going to just have to stop human preference for action over inaction. All of a sudden, John Bolton gets popular. Like, right. okay, but if we're not ever, if there's no, if there's nothing along the along the way that says, wait a minute, this is dumb. <laughs> like, if we don't have a dumb button to push, and we don't necessarily know the definition of help, at what point, you know, are we not the problem? Yeah, we have seen the enemy, and it is us. Okay, a mid a while ago when we were talking, you said something about. You're the so you said you were a constitutionalist, and then I think you said before we took a little break here something about there's like three flaws with the constitution or something like you remember. Oh, okay, yeah. So regardless of any like we live in a post constitutionalist period. I don't even uh, Mark Levin like he's a he's right wing like he's pro APAC like he's pro Israel. So I don't think I, I'm 
misquoting him when I say Mark Levin thinks we are post-constitutionalists. So like the constitutionalist guy that you're really going to find several books on, um, we need a constitutional convention guy says we live in a post-constitutionalist period. Okay. I'm going there. The first thing I'm going to say is democracy is just bad, not personal. Um, if you, if you like the way democracy works, then you should drink the hemlock. Like that's you, that's your system. You think it's good and you should just be stuck with it. And what I find is that people who believe social agency and democracy are supposed to be the same thing. They think you can only exercise your social agency through a vote, which is a bad idea. A democracy is really bad because it's a one solution system. A and B will vote over one solution. A and B will share a bucket of funding. That bucket of funding will go towards one solution. If A had bucket A and B had bucket B, you don't have to vote at all. A and B fund their own solutions. One's Walgreens, one's CVS, the end. So I don't really like democracy at all because it's not going to function to get you over the hard problems. It's going to function to get you over the easy ones. <clears throat> so right off the bat, I would just throw that out and say, maybe the Constitution was working in 1791. We're working in 2019. Democracy sucks. The second thing is Article 1, Section 8. It's Marxism. It's pure 100% Marxism. Just because Marx hadn't been born yet doesn't mean that taxation is not the very vehicle of socialism. It's the essence of it. You can put other socialist economic policies on top of the idea, but socialism doesn't exist without taxation. And it's, again, taxation is not a budget. It is a method of procuring funds. So if you're not, if you don't know how much that bridge is going to cost and you don't, if you aren't able to project all of that and say, look, here's our community bridge. We need a bridge. It's $10 million. If you can't do that cost assessment up front and fill that bucket up front and then pay for it with tolls, you don't know your business or you cannot afford a bridge. So now you're going to try and stimulate a bridge into existence where you think you need one. So it's not that taxation is, you know, we don't have to get into the morals of it. Taxation isn't a budget. And because if you don't, if you want to know what an organization with no budget looks like, look at the Department of Defense. So for anybody who thinks that, and, and if you try, like when I was doing this, I tried, I went through the Constitution every single time somebody would get screwed out of their legal rights with the Constitution. I pulled that rule out and I changed it. Well, when I pulled Article 1, Section 8 out, the whole thing blew up in my face. Nothing was funded. The entire constitutional document is not funded without Article 1, Section 8. And it's pure Marxism because you can't refuse it. No human, um, Mark, I think, are you familiar with Larkin Rose? Yeah. Okay. No human has the right to tax. The right to tax, the government is only supposed to have rights that people delegate to it as a collective. The government does this thing. We don't do it for ourselves, but we all had the right to delegate to begin with. Nobody has the right to tax. So here it is. Basically, you just make up the right to tax. You impose it on people. When you impose a legal system on people, you have to come up with all kinds of special protections. You, they have rights. And they. when you impose a legal system, you have to come mm. up with these, these rights for people. Otherwise, they're just going to reject your legal system. And as, yeah, just as, Jump in here. That's interesting. So in Bastiat's famous thing on the law, like that's where he goes down, like the you know what's legalized plunder versus something legitimate. And yeah, he's saying that. But and Thomas Paine develops this too that people have you know inborn natural right, like you can defend your property, you have a right to do that, and that's why you know if you're weak and a strong person coming, you can delegate 
that right to somebody else. And that's kind of like this theory of compact theory of government. But you're right. The individual doesn't have the right to take money from somebody else who doesn't agree with that project. So how could it possibly be if you're coming from that perspective that, and and they kind of just hand wave and say, well, we need to pay for this stuff. And so therefore you need taxes. Duh. And democracy (laughs) will get you past that. That speed bump in a heartbeat because you lost the vote 51 49. Right. So because you're, you're like what, uh, there's a concept that you can legislate past the second law of thermodynamics too. Like it's not just, we don't necessarily have a budget for this grandiose idea. It's now we're going to make something that literally uphill won't be uphill will be illegal. Now we have the power to legislate. So we're going to legislate against this. And if you get enough people who don't fundamentally understand what you're talking about, you get economic laws voted into existence that don't function because legislation. So we can we can be looking for people trying to poach liberties all day. But again, the incompetent moron who tries to legislate the second law of thermodynamics out of existence and manages to get it to pass has now saddled the entire whatever legal system they are. Now they have to enforce some law that just goes uphill for no reason. And everyone has to fund that uphill effort. And Hopefully you're feeling the value because you're going to pay the cost. So you see an awful lot of value and cost transference of we don't have a budget to tell you the costs, but the values are going to be totally worth it. And you're going to get to vote your values. So go ahead and do it. Mm-hmm. And all of the actual process management is is sold and it's marketed. It's not a we laid out a plan and we're going to go do it. It's bullshit marketing. And uh, Bernie Sanders, again, why isn't he helping Maduro right now? Why isn't AOC and Bernie Sanders and Maduro on a Skype call on the internet so that everybody can watch them fix the turnkey socialism that is Venezuela? And the answer is Bernie and AOC don't know. They don't know how, and they can't help Maduro. And, and again, the people who follow the train of thought that you're saying, because what they have ostensibly is socialism down there and Bernie and AOC are democratic socialists, Right. So they should be the ones advising him because clearly it's not working out well. Right. Taxman and Robin should be able to swoop in there and fix that right quick because they're telling everybody in America, we know what socialism is. We know how to do it. We know how to perform it. All you got to do is put us in the right place and we'll do it. They can't do a little pro bono work. They can't mm-hmm. call Maduro. And and listen, this is a huge PR boost, right? Shouldn't both of them happily be on a Skype call with their smiling faces talking to Maduro? No, they should definitely be doing that, but they're not doing it. So I guess in fairness, wouldn't the pro-socialists say it's because it's the U.S. sanctions and whatever that's the issue down there? Otherwise, socialism would be great. If that's the problem, then again, we go back to U.S. law being the problem. We're not we're not talking about Bernie Sanders not being able to help out Maduro because he doesn't know how. We're saying he's not allowed to know how. And if he's not allowed or he's not allowed to help, if he's not allowed to help, why if he doesn't know how, why is he being funded to the tune of I know how to be the democratic nationalist or democratic socialist candidate for everyone when he can't perform a simple a simple mission of I'm going to call Maduro, find out what screwed up. And I say this because Milton Friedman definitely did this. He did this in the 70s in Peru. And excuse me, I uh, I look at this as a special forces mission. He took a small team of people down there. He did economic economic training of the key government personnel and the key business personnel, taught them how to work together, solve their own coordination problem. 
Okay, Dan, just to clarify, because I know some listeners might think you're getting mixed up. You're, you're not talking about the allegations. Mean, some people say, oh, Milton Friedman was, was buddy buddies with Pinochet in Chile. That's not what you're talking about. You're talking about no, the advice no. he gave to the Peruvian He was government. giving advice to Peru and basically took a bunch of college students down there and trained people in this. Well, that's exactly what a special forces mission is. That you take, you take a small group of highly trained individuals who are going to assess the problem on the ground and they are going to tailor make you a solution. That's what Milton Friedman did. And that's what Bernie Sanders doesn't know how to do. And that's a I'm I'm not hating on Bernie. I'm saying if he has the skills, he should be able to show them Mm -hmm. tomorrow. And I mean, I don't know as much about Bernie, but like AOC with that whole Green New Deal. It is shocking. I mean, it was literally her and a bunch of like, like, I think like eight people just sitting around a room, probably going and getting Starbucks and takeout and dreaming up trillion dollar plus plan. Right. And hey, you know, and, you know, and we'll go Google some stuff about <laughs> and that stuff about the, uh, you know, farting cows where that wasn't a hoax. They really did have that in the FAQ and they took it down. <laughs> right. She is a bartender in a pantsuit. That's that literally she is too young. Bernie Sanders has been around at least long enough to understand the processes. He knows they're not going to work. AOC doesn't even know that. So if, if she can't help Maduro out again, she's it's charlatanism. I'm not I'm not being pejorative. These people either know what they're doing or they don't. And they don't have to have pay and pension and another election underneath their butt to show that they know what they know. They could do it over the phone right now. And that's really a big problem. Like the political sphere is all talk and no action, even when it can be. And Milton Friedman was never trying to get elected. He would just go down there and do that because, you know, not humanitarian disaster. Well, why not not humanitarian disaster in Venezuela if you know how, Bernie? Mm -hmm. You know, why not? And that's and. Politics is charlatanism. That's all it ever is. And it doesn't function like it's not even if we can get into every detail. But every time the Constitution screwed somebody, I said, OK, we take out this mechanic. We put something else in. Who does that screw? Wait, wait, you said this. What exactly do you mean? You're saying this in your day to day life. You come across a news story and realize, oh, that was another way that the Constitution. Every imagine all of your political conversations that you ever had. There's a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Well, think about keeping a log in your head of. This doesn't work, so I don't have to remember it anymore. I just have to know the mechanics up to here. um, When you're working through political issues, at a certain point, you recognize this is a logical fallacy. This is just false information that was passed around the Internet. This is economically obtuse and will never function. So you start honing your political skills of, I know how this works, therefore this cannot do that. You, you haven't necessarily narrowed it down to what it what it should do, because what it should do will be different for you and I. But what it can do and what it can't do is germane to whether or not you and I should vote on it. And then why should we vote on it? You can have yours and I can have mine and we can have different buckets of funding. So there's really no inherent reason for us to vote because we can just do separate things. It turns out that most voters don't know what they're doing. And that's because the system is so complicated that... I don't know why the division of labor hasn't kind of bled over into politics. Everybody seems that they're supposed to be infinitely qualified about everything in the political sphere instead of, I just know defense and one other pet peeve issue. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And that's all they ever vote on. And that's all they contribute to because they don't know. Well, no, you have your money taken. You have it spent across the prism, the prismatic political scale. Then you have to try to participate to get your money's worth. And it's really, it all just kind of rides on the, why are we funding Bernie for a solution tomorrow that he can't produce yesterday when he says he could produce it yesterday? 
And why are we all going to continue to perpetuate a system that does so? Okay. That it just just doesn't make any sense anymore. Yeah. So let's. Oh wait, let me get to okay. number three. The third right. reason that the Constitution is dead is the telegraph. When my information moves across the battlefield at the telegraph speed, and your information moves by a pony express, you are not on the battlefield anymore. You are a figment of my imagination. None of this matters. You are beaten. And that's what happened. The telegraph showed up and somebody was moving information faster than the Pony Express. Imagine lawyers colluding against you, one using telegraph and one is using Pony Express. The legal system was dead right there. The legal system was dead. And and then you think, okay, we're going to sue the telegraph people and we're going to become a public good and everybody will get to use it. No, the people who were using the Pony Express, now they lost their information security. They're now going to use the lines that were up and the people who owned them, they can now spy on them. So they used to have slow information, but it was secure. Now they have fast information, but it's not secure. And then they could break up my bell, but it doesn't matter. You just fractionate the problem. Now you have five people. Um, you know, you have different, different bells being able to still spy on people because the nature of a system allows you to spy on them. So there's a lot of people they, they believe, oh, well, I think it was this. I think it was that. I guarantee the con- the telegraph killed the constitution. If there was no other reason, somebody had the Byzantine general solve problem solved with the telegraph. Somebody else had to use horses and there hasn't been any real way to fix that until the internet because now everybody has the telegraph. So now we get to see the, the cracks in the system. Now it's not some situational thing where one guy has horses and one guy has telegraph. Everybody has the telegraph and you start seeing where the information just grinds right up against the system, where the internet will show you reality live and uncut. And then the system is just completely bullshit at that point. So then it's, okay, wait a minute. Now we have a broken system. Nobody knows how to use it and nobody knows why to use it. So instead of having three good points of information to help yourself out with, you have three bad points of information that everybody fight over. So just to understand that your argument, you're saying whatever else may have been right or wrong about the Constitution, once there was a period where the elites had access to fast transmission of information and to the extent that the general public wanted to use it, it wasn't secure – Whatever else the Constitution made, that system wasn't going to work anymore. You could be a whole system full of dopes. And as soon as you have a telegraph, you become elites. Mm -hmm. That portion of your life got so streamlined so fast that now you're just de facto elites. Whatever that word means, you're better at it than they are by a huge order of magnitude. You are going to solve problems faster. You are going to have more money flowing. And then you have a subjective system to manipulate. That's what it really boils down to. It's that subjective system that is going to be forced upon you. And then you're, and then you're told you have rights and those rights will keep you out of trouble if you're correct. And, and that's just false. Mm-hmm. The system is pejorative. You're stuck with it. You can't get rid of it. And that's functionally the problem. You are taxed for a system that doesn't function and you are told you don't have the right to alter or abolish it. And I challenge. Okay. So let's. Now talk more about like your, what I really liked in that, that restaurant conversation we had is you showed me your plan at the time you were calling it automate Congress. Do you still like that phrase or have you moved on? Everybody in the Tom Woods group hated that phrase. They, nobody liked the idea of a Congress at all. Right. And I understand. Mm Mm-hmm. I was very frustrated because they were all libertarians and they didn't even take the time to figure out that that's exactly what I was saying. It wasn't automating. 
it wasn't automate that the legislature. It's turn the processes that have huge fraud surfaces on them into an automated process and turn the mm-hmm. turn the the personal choice processes into something that you do. So the things I'm going to keep repeating over and over again are become your own representative and all warfare is based on deception. So if you think it works right and it doesn't, you're going to lose. And if you think it's honest and it's not, you're going to lose. So you have to set the material conditions for victory. You don't trust that they're there. You don't trust that your representative isn't fraud and you don't trust that you have to pay for solutions that you don't control. Okay. So it, it, it's interesting. And we, I, we were talking a little bit about this before we started recording, but for the benefit of the listeners, let me give them that context. So when people think about like, oh, what's the problem with democracy or the way the government works? People can think of things like, well, you know, it's it's really, you know, not fair that somebody imposes their will. But part of what goes on there, the reason it's such an issue is what things are fall under the umbrella of a, quote, democratic solution in the first place. So I could see, for example, if the if we all agree on what the United States is and we all say there's got to be a national bird then I can understand saying, well, one man or one person, one vote, fair enough. Right. But we don't need to say, okay, where are we going to locate all the car plants? Let's use voting majority rule to determine that. We realize, no, that's a bad idea. There's a much better system that we use, you know, decentralized market economy to figure out where automobile factory is going to be located. That's not something you use the ballot box to, to figure out. We don't say, you know, who you're going to marry let's all have a national vote on that. Right. We don't do stuff like that. So people realize there's spheres where voting does not impede on. And so that's part of what's going on. So one way of what what you're talking about is you're saying, why don't we decentralize it? Like it doesn't need to be a national defense budget. Let everybody who want, you know, if you want to contribute some funds to military defense or even more narrowly defined things like this mission in this particular place, go ahead and contribute. There is a decision made as to what is going to be a voted upon or not voted upon topic. And then you're lassoed into it by citizenship. You mm-hmm. are now stuck with it. So a lot of these are individuals decisions that the government drags people in. Do you think there should be a national defense is a good question for someone. If your answer is no, you will still pay for the one that we're going to have. Why? The people in Texas, like there's a lot of gun owners in Texas. The non-gun owners of Texas do not have to kick all of the gun owners a subsidy because we make the property, you know, your property tax is cheap as hell around here because there's a ton of gun owners and and crime is a dangerous contact sport down here. Mm -hmm. So we don't get to claim that the gun, the non-gun owners own us, owe us a subsidy because we keep weapons in our house in the property taxes. We don't get to claim that. So claiming that, because there is a defense of the North American landmass and everyone has to share in it, that's here's what's going to happen. I understand the argument that you're going to have free riders. You're also going to lose your agency. When you say these people will help us pay for defense, you're going to pay for abortions. You're going to pay for welfare. You're going to pay for a bunch of programs that are dumb. Mm-hmm. So by separating and saying, okay, there's, there's a defense bucket. Hell, there might be two defense buckets. But you're not required to put anything in them. You see what the what the need for defense is. You see what the appetite for defense is. You see what the ability to pay for defense is. Lots of intelligent metrics for any anybody who's putting anything together. 
those are all intelligent metrics that those people need to start working to formulate what they're going to do. Pretending that anybody, that the desires of the general public can then be voted upon and brought into reality is not necessarily true to begin with. So asking a question of how are we going to defend the North American landmass precludes should we defend it at all? So if the answer is no, we shouldn't defend it, then you shouldn't be involved in this anyway. Go do something else. No, no mm-hmm. problem. I think a lot of people worry more. They worry more about the free rider problem because they're the ones not kicking into anything. They're letting the system take their money. They like kind of the way it's spent and they stay away from the arguments because they kind of like it that way. Uh, it's the only way that I can really justify it because there's really no function. Like, you know, you're paying for it and you're not getting what you're paying for anyway. Yeah. So, and I remember the way you were motivating it to me. It was something along the lines of like, you could say to, you know, somebody from California, some super feminist, radical environmentalist, anti-war activist say, look at the money you want to contribute to, you know, saving the tree, you know, national forests, Planet blah, blah, blah. Parenthood. Let's get, yeah. let's get as pejorative as we can. Sure. <laughs> you, yep. She's a blue haired feminist from Berkeley and she wants all of her paycheck money. Like we're, now I'm saying you're going to put your money in the bucket yourself, but let's mm-hmm. just assume that the tax system stays the way it is. You're going to choose your tax dollars to, in what buckets they're going to go into and in what percentages. Mm-hmm. She wants hundred percent Planned Parenthood. You get that 100% Planned Parenthood. And that is your deal. You do it openly. You do a public. Um, if you don't understand what a blockchain is, it's an open public ledger. You can go. There's lots of internet stuff on that. I won't get into that. So yeah, well, and I do want to tie it though because it's not the way you were tying it to the blockchain though. I think okay. is important because you're showing the implementation. There's a way you could actually do this yeah. that you couldn't have done back in the year 1900. Right. But in terms of what is it that we're trying to do, you're saying rather than the current system, yeah, where we all have periodic elections, we all hate each other's guts. Just say, okay, yeah, the things that you think are important, you send your, so we'll give you the, if you don't want the U.S. military toppling the Maduro's regime, then you don't have to pay one cent for that. Exactly. But then if I don't believe in abortion, I shouldn't have to fund Planned Parenthood. So can we agree on that? Exactly that. And I'm going to get a little cheeky with the Christians here. Christians have to start giving abortion to God and not the state. They really do. All Christians have done by turning of the abortion topic into a legal issue is ended up subsidizing it. That's it. You are now paying for abortions through Planned Parenthood. You will subsidize it because you wanted it in the legal system. I think the Christians do a lot better to say we are going to withdraw all of our money. We are not going to fund Planned Parenthood anymore. We are going to only fund our things. And because of the amount of subsidies that go into the abortion game, my guess is that that tactic will work a lot better in lowering the net number of abortions due through right. through lack of subsidies. It was an analogy, or an analogy, but another example that was the Protestants were concerned about Catholic schools. And so they made the ill-fated decision to go the government route and to try to get, you know, Protestant values through public school, so-called public school. Right. And then that ended up, of course, eating them down the road where now you, you can't right. say grace before lunch. In a system that that explicitly keeps church and state apart, some Protestants thought they were going to use the state to promote the church. Congratulations. Right. You have totally backwards thinking and your whole thing blew up in your face because that's how it worked to begin with. So I'm kind of done with the abortion debate. Like there's the pro-choice people and the pro-life people, and they're all liars because you're pro-abortion or you're anti-abortion. That's the actual debate. So I'm tired of hearing about pro-life and pro-choice. 
but if you really think about this, this debate, it's, it's another one of those topics where you end up talking only about rights and not about responsibilities. Find a woman who's going to tell you that abortion is a good method of birth control. Best of luck finding one. It's a terrible hormone ride for your body. You don't, you don't actually want to get pregnant and then be not pregnant. It's a big, it's a huge problem. So a lot of the abortion debate comes down to whether or not it's responsibility. Like you, you should not be getting pregnant because this is not, you, you get cancer. It happens to you. You don't get pregnant. You participate in pregnancy. Now, any rape exceptions, I'm completely okay with executing the rapist and, and that woman be having hundred percent access to abortion. Like this isn't about choices. If a woman has her choices taken away in a rape, then she needs to not be pregnant. That's just earth. And anybody who has a problem with that, maybe you need to recognize it's not about choice. She had her choices taken away. She gets them back. We, you know, but that doesn't take, that's not, you don't have a long-term rape baby. You know, there, we don't have the long-term rape, uh, the long-term abortion argument about a rape baby. Like that happened and there's a window of time when that happened, but then that's irrelevant. So a lot of the abortion argument is about exceptions. But it really is about control. You're going to take something that is not inherently political. You're going to make it legal and political at the same time. And no one's going to be happy about it. The people who think they understand abortion as a birth control method don't. The people who think they're going to use the law to prevent abortions aren't. Everybody's going to pay for it in the meantime. Everybody's going to fight about it in the meantime. Nobody's going to win. So why is this argument still going on 25 years after the first time I heard of it? I don't know. Other than systemic failure of this system doesn't doesn't actually prevent these problems, so they will just keep happening. Okay, so on it's not just abortion, because I'm sure half the people disagree with some portion of your argument there. But in general, the idea, what you're suggesting is rather than we all – agree, oh, the government has to do X, Y, and Z, and we're going to send our representatives to go and figure out how much they're going to take from us, how much they're going to spend and allocate in the different buckets, and every two years we'll kind of check in on them and through this other crazy system with the political process and the media and blah, blah, blah. You're saying, no, give the power to the individuals and let them allocate their funds as they see fit. Right. And so, again, what? so I think most people, well, there's two problems or two concerns they might have. One is, you know, oh, gee, well, what if enough's not spent on important things? And, and it goes with this the free rider issue. So even it's kind of like they're saying if this, so the, the economic argument is it's not merely that we're saying or that they're saying, well, gee, I just disagree with the voters. You know, if they're not willing to spend enough to keep the country safe from invasion, well, screw them. It's rather saying, oh, if everybody else is contributing just enough then I can free ride and not contribute. And I, I, I like what you, you said something along the lines of in terms of the actual numbers and how much would need to be spent to keep the U S safe from actual invasion and conquest. Are you telling me a bunch of Americans wouldn't be willing to spend a couple thousand dollars a year? And that'd be way more than enough. My understanding of all this is literally based on the YAL1, we have some kind of laser technology in effect. Why isn't it just deployed along the, the Colorado or the Rockies facing west? Anything coming west is handled by this by this piece of technology, which apparently existed 20 years ago. Right. So I'm just positing that there's stuff that DARPA knows how to play with and knows how to use. And it's there. It's probably already there. 
but it's easier to keep a secret paywall up or a top secret paywall up. And you don't get to know what's actually keeping you safe because we need these political enemies for the political argument. And at this point, like I'm, I don't want to declare politics dead. I want to declare it useless and it is useless. Politics is war by other means. So anybody who thinks that they have, it has use, they're wrong. They're wrong. They're actually just fighting. It is war by other means. So if you can disintermediate that war right there, where we're not going to argue about abortion, you're going to fund your solution and we're going to fund ours. And there's a lot of people who'll scream and say, oh, you can't, you can't do it that way. Let me tell you, let me, hi, I'm intelligence Sergeant Garrett. There's a, there are people who will live out in the woods and they will make babies out in the woods and then they will sell babies. Like that's, what's just going to happen. You're not going to get as far ahead of the human trafficking. Abortion is bad. You're not going to get a, the whole sphere of argument that goes around abortion and human trafficking. You're not getting around that. That works in a particular way. There, if people are, if people want to make babies and sell them, they will go out into a log cabin and they will make babies and they will sell them. The whole point is you make that industry absolutely as ridiculously hard as humanly possible. Why, why adoption isn't done in just an open source manner so that you can see these are the adoption people and these are the people who want people and here's the new baby that's born. Anytime that is done behind closed doors, that process has, it has the chance for real abuse of real children. Mm-hmm. Catholic Church, writ large, the, the Catholic Church refers to the systemic rape of children and the, and the moving around of the offenders as a scandal. Like this is politics 101. You downplay something like this all the way down to just a scandal. And, and you can't have a system like that because those systems have to be done open source or they will have a fraud surface, even if it's not abused. Even if the, the most honest people take the system, it doesn't work. Same thing with the Catholic. I mean, Catholics um, in several continents now have been caught trafficking children. Catholic priests, Catholic nuns, this is uh, four continents now. So this is bad, but it's really more the system that allows these things. It's not any, it's not the whole Catholic Church. It's not the body of believers that is the Catholic Church. It's not Catholic dogma. The Vatican is an intelligence network and has been for several hundred years. It operates like an intelligence network. It doesn't operate like the church bureaucracy. It operates like if we had the CIA, we would run that too. That's how the Vatican operates. So because these systems are so corrupt and they're allowed to have their own bailiwick, they do. They do. The reason, I mean, Scott Horton points out a lot of stuff about how the federal government is just flat out corrupt. And for every instance of corruption, you just find another instance of ineptitude. So it's either the system that's broken or it's the operators. And it can't be everybody. Mm-hmm. It, it's really more a matter of if a process has 148 steps and each person has one step, somewhere between 42 and 60, a lot of fraud can go on. And nobody really knows where it happens except guy number 58 because he's the only guy doing it. But that's it. How do you prevent that? You can't. You only prevent it by open systems like like blockchain, like distributed ledgers where that information is no longer contained behind a paywall, no longer hidden. And like most of the information security that people think they need is because that information will cause them a legal problem. If they would not hide, you and I would not hide nearly as much of our information if it could not be used against us in court. We would just leave it on an open public ledger and not care. But because we have this legal system that does all of these other shitty things, 
Now it also causes each and every one of us a security problem because a prosecutor has the legal right to come into your life and cause you an economic catastrophe based on his ineptitude. He doesn't have to be corrupt. He could just come after you because he thinks he can make a case and his job requires him to make cases or he won't get promoted. And that's his life. And he's going to the system is now going to have to process you because maybe crime and maybe not. And then you always deal with selective enforcement. Sometimes the prosecutor is actually prosecuting you for a good reason. Sometimes he's just giving you a hard time. So the competition doesn't have a hard time. Mm -hmm. Every way, every way it's corrupt. It's also enough. Okay. So how then, you know, we're getting the idea that, okay, it'd be better to get the the way the systems work right now. They, they can't work at least the way the public would want them to. And so maybe there's certain, you know, vested interests that like the way it's working and they, you know, build up faith in it and, and let the illusion persist. So then, okay, how is it that using the blockchain now, it actually is feasible to implement the kind of vision that you had there. So we're all stuck with a social contract. The left will speak of the social contact, social contract, but there isn't one. The right will point to the constitution and say, this isn't the contract, it's the constitution. So contracts you have to sign up for, constitutions you're stuck with. So the right actually wants their freedoms more, but they accept the rule of the constitution. The left complains about the lack of freedom more, but they really like the system in place and they want a contract. So At this point, I am right down to, okay, I'm the intelligence analyst. I have to rip apart a government next door. Never mind, it's mine. I have to rip apart the government next door. How am I going to do this? I'm going to send in special forces. How, what are, what am I going to tell them to do? Train the population to defend themselves against this government. Okay, it's the federal government. How? Not with a civil war. In this place, we can speak, like, if, if all, uh, All warfare is based on deception and politics is warfare by other means. We should be able to kill politics with truth if what is being said is false. Mm -hmm. That when you put, when you take good information and you put it in a pool of dumb people, that good information straightens the dumb people out. It might take a little while, but at a certain point, they can't deny the good information anymore. They are getting pot, they are getting feedback. They have new metrics. They will change their mind. It takes a while. When you're your own representative, nobody gets to put your money where you want to. Nobody gets to decide where that money goes. The problem that this has is, so my first question is, I ended up, what is a republic? Mm -hmm. Because as soon as I said, okay, no more representatives, they're nothing but fraud. Everyone is going to become their own representative. If that's the only change you make to the whole system, all of a sudden we live in a direct democracy. Right. Well, how the hell did that happen? Is the entire mechanics of everybody, what they consider a republic, does that boil down to a representative? Because as soon as you take it out, all of a sudden it's a constitutional democracy. We're all we're all in Congress, according to parliamentary procedure, voting on legislation just because we took that representative out. There has to be more to a republic than that. There just functionally has to be. So I looked up the definition of a republic. And it's multisyllabic, 18 different words that if you change the meaning of each one of those words, you get hundreds of different outcomes based on how complicated a republic is. We all know we don't want a direct democracy, but any, but I need to, so I'm going to make a claim of objectivity. Someone needs to make an argument that we are not supposed to be our own representatives. The idea that someone is supposed to go and represent me in a legal system is stupid. 
That's mm-hmm. stupid. I should be the first person in line to do that for me. And if I don't know how, then I should explicitly contract out for somebody to do that, like a lawyer. Okay, the lawyer is part of a private organization that's not allowed. I mean, for all you people who hate corporatism, the Bar Association is a private organization. You're not allowed to really practice in the public system unless you're a member of the private organization. This is corporatism writ large, and it's in it. It's the foundational core of the legal system. How can this be objective and fair? How? I want to know. Because I wasn't able to figure out anything past the Constitution probably functioned in 1791. It absolutely doesn't function now because of technology. The system now doesn't function because of all of the other flaws. Not, Not necessarily the telegraph, which we all have now. It's all of the other flaws. All of the process flaws where... If you have 50,000 dominoes set up in a, in a gymnasium, you only have to take certain ones out at certain points and you destroy entire portions of the domino maze. And that's exactly what the political system is now. It's people strategically pulling your dominoes out when they're supposed to be there to cause your thing to fail, to cause their thing to succeed, or maybe not. They don't need a reason. There doesn't have to be an intelligent reason for failure. There doesn't have to be an intelligent reason for not having a budget. There just has to be the appearance of progress and enough votes to justify it. So if we could, if all of the adults keep participating in this, the children will continue to win. The end. You will be outvoted by the children because they have more motivation and more time. So then you're going to be forced to put your resources in and the children are going to spend them. They don't know how. And, and again, I don't want to assume that it's malevolence. It's just dumb people and the system caters to dumb people. That's it. It's not pejorative dumb. If we can't see the far side of the bell curve, we have forgotten our roots. So these people are there. They're part of the same system that we're in. We used to be stupid. Nobody really knows how to operate it, and it needs to change. So I'm just the weird anomaly of circumstances from the military that probably figured out how to make a change. You have to be your own representative instead. Okay, so so that that's, that is one step to say, yeah, we got to be your own representative. So and, and Tom. I think he had somebody on his show a while ago saying the idea of representation in the political sense is nonsense. Like if you just analyze that, like how does that even happen? Unless perhaps like you say, if you literally yourself say, I designate so-and-so to be my, you know, power of attorney. Okay. There's a sense in which that person really does not have expressly delegated powers to act on your behalf in a very circumscribed manner. And that's clearly not what happens when you a bunch of you and your neighbors go and vote for your representative. That's obviously not what happens. But then as you also acknowledge, okay, that's we're still, though, now with the problem of direct democracy, where if 51 percent of us all vote that everyone has to kick it or or even 51 percent could vote that, oh, yeah, the the richest 10 percent of the population has to fund X, Y and Z and give free health care to everybody. So that's by itself not a solution. And so that's where the the volunteerism comes in that, oh, no, nobody can make you pay something you do that you don't want to. Well, I think this is more your area. This is legal externalities. Okay. When you take an idea that has no budget and you subject it to its own rules, it fails immediately because it has no budget. It it becomes its own self-reinforcing stupid and it dies. When you take ideas and you um, require that idea to exist under its own conditions, it either succeeds or it fails but you'll at least understand why you were, you were testing a certain thing. This thing failed for this reason. Maybe you modify it to work. Maybe you don't. The same thing really, really, really works with the law. 
So I'm not just saying you become your own representative. I'm saying you write your own laws. Now, that sounds crazy. But if you take all of the laws, all of the laws, and you, you it's a finite number. You know, the don't murder law is just one. And then there's the don't rape law. How many laws do you bring into your own life before you start looking at why would I want TPP in my life? I'm not signing up for that. So you go, almost most TPP of humanity, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Right, tra- yeah, well, trade T- deal. yeah, TPP, NAFTA, some kind of a war, some kind of real aggregated societal endeavor that we're all going to supposedly contribute to, but you don't necessarily know anything about. So if you had to pay for, you know, you had to pay for your legal system every Friday when payday came, you would have a minimal legal system. I don't want to be murdered, raped. I want to have a minimal legal presence because I don't need all of this. But then the legal system makes a bunch of other assumptions about you because the system is cast upon you. Eminent domain is is nothing more than a taxation. It's an exception to policy. We don't normally take people's property. However, we found a bunch of really politically good reasons to take people's property. So now we'll do it. Eminent domain is not a concept anyone needs in their legal system. All it does is give the government the ability to take your house legally. So would you sign up for eminent domain? No, you wouldn't. You would sign up for all of the intelligent laws that humanity has worked off of since the beginning of whenever. Don't murder, don't rape, don't steal. All of those things come come pretty naturally. So this actually makes a really good humanitarian human rights one or two pages, all the definitions, I don't murder, I don't rape, social contract. Johns Hancock doesn't sign the bottom, you do. So now, because you just volunteered to not perform certain anti-human acts, the legal system gets smart. It doesn't have to preserve certain rights because you don't deserve them. You admitted, I, if I had, you know, and there's, there's some terms and conditions there. I'm not saying this is, this is holistic. I'm saying the next layer of this solution looks like Andrew Napolitano writing your legal system. So you sign a social contract to become a representative and say, I will not marry, I will not murder, I will not do these things. Then you say, but I am going to have property because I'm going to have property. Property law is a difficult thing. I'm going to join the Andrew Napolitano Legal Network. Now you have Andrew Napolitano writing your laws, and he's not putting eminent domain in the list either. Mm -hmm. So now you're signing up for your legal system. There's no reason you can't do this now. There are 51 legal systems in America. There's There's federal government, and then there's 50 states. There is no inherent reason that the shape of Texas has to be the shape of Texas. It could look like the Verizon subscriber map. We could have a mass, everybody who wants Texas as their legal system should be able to sign up all over America, the Republic of America. Anywhere you want, you sign up for Texas. Anywhere you want, you sign up for New York. Anywhere you want, you sign up for California. Yeah, let me stop you because that's a great point. And I want to make sure people, because you said it quickly, I want to make sure they got the profundity there of what you said, that right now the way people think in terms of, quote, laws is that it's it's geographically based and everybody who, you know, there's a map and you draw lines around it and everybody in this region all has the same laws applying to them by which they mean like the state politically enforced things with the cops and court system. But yet when it comes to something like to say, who's going to, you know, when it comes to your internet service, what are the terms and conditions of that? It's not that, oh, well, everybody in this region right here has one company and they all pay this amount per month and get this kind of broadband, blah, blah, blah. No, it's interspersed. Right. And it's not geographically based necessarily. And that seems to work. And so you're saying what obviously works so well. And kind of going back to what we said a while ago, that 
people think, oh, well, you got to have a, a national election in order to figure out what the defense budget is. But we don't need a national election to figure out what the ice cream budget is. If by that we mean how much is spent every year on ice cream. Those are all decentralized decisions. And in the grand scheme, doesn't it seem like the ice cream industry is a lot more rational than the military sector? <laughs> and that's not a coincidence. Well, if you're having elections to determine the military budget, that doesn't work. We've had lots of elections. Nobody knows what the military budget is. Mm-hmm. So even that doesn't work. Like as, as all of the components of the system, as they lie, they don't work. They don't work. They're held together. The, the method by which it's all held together is destroying the monetary system slowly. Now, okay, that's fine. That's one of the methods of keeping, keeping a, a common narrative. Everyone in America doesn't have to agree. But because the law only can be written one way along a certain precedent, we now de facto have to agree. So now the answer is move because you don't like it here. You go to another legal system in another state. Why move? Why move? Because your legal system doesn't, uh, you, you need to, everybody needs to look at their own state legislatures and say, no, you move. You're going to go away. We'll be our, we're all going to sign up for the, now you got to be careful what you're asking for, right? You don't necessarily want to sign up for the laws of Texas. Uh, Oregon and Massachusetts and several other states have, or Colorado, legalized cannabis. Texas doesn't have legalized cannabis. They have legalized cannabis, but not legalized THC. So you can get this watered down version of cannabis in Texas over the counter now, but you can't actually get, you know, full blown recreation or full blown recreational cannabis isn't legal here. Why is everyone in Texas listening to anyone in Austin? Ever talk to those guys? They don't know what they're talking about. They know how the parliamentary procedure works. They know how to raise campaign funds. They don't know how any of this other stuff works. If they do, they're a lawyer. And if they do, they're incentivized to not know. How many lawyers in this country make their own legal system? None. They all use somebody else's. They go to school to learn somebody else's. It's a fundamental bias. They, I only play in this playground. I only play on certain, um, certain rides on this playground. I'm a specialist in family law and criminal law. I don't, I don't ride any of the other rides on this playground and they don't know any other playground. But even if they did, the bar association doesn't let them play in another playground. So they only get a legal bailiwick. I don't have a legal bailiwick. My job is to destroy the government on the other side of that line. Now I'm just standing in the line. That's all. I'm, I'm on the same side line. So how do I destroy the federal government? Okay, well, we don't necessarily want to destroy the organization of American society, but we definitely want to get rid of all the cost overruns and all the nonsense in Washington. So when you're your own representative and you sign up for your own laws, you create a legislature the same way you would do build America. Everybody walks in, gets their own bill to bear. You are your own representative. You will put your money in these buckets. It will be done openly. So there's no secret ballot. You don't get to secretly fund the military. You get to openly fund the military. My name's Donnie. I'm at this address. This is my cryptocurrency address. I put money into this bucket on this date because it's in a public law. So if that military organization gets out of hand, I'm also legally liable because I'm a contributor. And, and that's another problem, like military people. I'm one of them. They're they're legally immune from the action, their actions, and they shouldn't be. It causes a bias, and we're really not. You know, if you don't follow orders and you go killing people, you will pay for that. Well, if you do follow orders and you kill people, you won't pay for that. That's an awful lot. You want to know why a bunch of people are PTSD'd out? They don't know the difference between 
I did it and I should have, and I didn't and I shouldn't. I did. And even there, right. if you lose a war, then maybe you still will. They'll say, no, following orders wasn't a valid defense. So it's right. Following yeah. orders wasn't even effective, regardless of whether or not it was a valid defense. You're 20 years at war and everybody who went and said, wait a minute, why isn't that over yet? Because the 10 year plan is eight years overdue and the 10 year plan wasn't even being mm. used up front. So we were pretty much lied to. And now it's, do we take our toys and go home? Do we take our defeats and then try to, I, I just don't do that. I'll crawl into my garage and figure out a way to figure out a way to make it happen. So that's kind of what I've been up to. Folks, let's take another break. Give you a little breather here from this intense interview with Donnie to talk about my book, Contra Krugman. So part of what underlies all of this stuff we've been talking about in this interview is the fact that the free market works and government intervention in economic matters does not work. And you can see this in Contra Krugman across a whole spectrum of issues. It's not just fiscal policy or monetary policy, as I'm sure you know has got to be in there, but I also battle Krugman on environmental policy. Even I caught him bluffing and making some goofs on uh, trade theory, believe it or not, even though that's where he won the Nobel Prize. So go to ContraKrugmanBook.com to see more details on how you can get your hands on a copy. Okay, Donnie, so I think people see the general vision you have here. So let me now ask questions on behalf of the skeptical listener so they let you flesh out some of the practical difficulties. So I think people get, okay, yeah, there's certain things that the federal government spends money on, like funding the um, you know art, National Endowment for the Arts. We can kind of see how... Probably wouldn't be the end of the world if we just let people contribute what they wanted to that. And like like you're saying, if some, let's call them liberals, are worried that, oh, no, those right-wing Neanderthals aren't going to spend enough on funding, you know, museums or whatever, you know, whatever projects, that's fine because, no, you can look and see what the totals are. And if, you know, the fans of, uh, you know, people living in Alabama don't want to fund that, you can fund more and you can spend less on the stuff they care about. And so that, and that's kind of, you know I mean? So it kind of works out. It's, that's the beauty of it, that you're not forced to contribute for stuff you don't really think is that important. Like, in other words, every, there cannot be a single person who looks at the federal budget and says, I approve of that. Everybody looks at that and says, whoa, I would not, you know, I don't like my money being spent that way. And that's where all, okay. So there, there are things like that. I, I think they might not agree with it, but they might be nervous, but they get the logic and how, okay, yeah, arguably that, that would be a better system than what we're doing right now. But when it's not things that are self-contained, like you know how much funding is going to go to artists or how much funding, even something like higher education, whatever. But when it's something like, is it illegal for me to get a tattoo or is it, you know, can I get my ears pierced if I'm a 12-year-old girl and my parents don't agree? Things like that. Or is it illegal for me to break into somebody's house? How could that be decentralized where for one person walking around, it's fine in his world, it's legal to break into houses, but somebody else's world, it's not. What not there a conflict there? You can't legislate criminals away anyway. So here I am suggesting we all sign a social contract. And the first thing I'm going to warn you of is liars. They're going to sign the social contract and murder anyway. Uh-oh. We're going to have to deal with that anyway. They are always going to be the exceptions to the rule, not the rule. Almost everybody in civil society, the entire planet over, Chinese, Iranian, Syrian, American, none of that matters 99% of the population, 99% of the time. You don't really have that problem. The American crime problem looks bad because you show 325 million 
people worth of crime <clears throat> to everyone all the time, highlighting the sensational stuff, you always have enough material every other week to show something to somebody. What is your crime problem? Hardly ever. Maybe that crime was near you, maybe not. But it's it's really low. You were saying about what does the defense budget look like when people – maybe people need to understand what the defense budget should look like. Maybe we find out that there's not a lot of people who want the defense budget. But then again, what does it take to invade America? We have a country filled with people with guns. There's no other country on the face of the planet that has the movement assets to get their military here unless they borrow ours. So the Russian military can get here with Russian and American movement assets. The Chinese military can't get here with Russian, American, and Chinese movement assets because there isn't enough. Too big of an army. But just for the sake of argument, if the entire Chinese army was in L.A., they don't get past the Rockies because America's filled with lunatics with guns. It's over. It's over. Okay, it's done. It's not a real concern. So what we need to defend Yeah, just on that, there was the, um, was it Yamamoto? There was some Japanese admiral who was against Pearl Harbor, and he said something like, if we tried to invade the American mainland, there'd be a rifle behind every blade of grass. Yes, said something like yes. That. Yeah. And, then, and then they invaded, and he said, we have awoken a, sweet, a sleeping giant. And that's exactly what happened. There was no need to involve America in the war, but, you know, as wars go, they're not all rational. And... Should we, as as like humans, keep to keep the World War II paradigm, a two front conventional war? Should we keep all of that equipment and all those people on staff? No, no. There's no reason for it because there's really not a two front enemy to fight. Like half of the world has to gang up all of their militaries together to have one front, and then like China, North Korea, and Russia have to form the other front. Like, literally, the entire world has to go to war with us to have a two-front. So it's the last general's war with that general that had a bottomless budget. So, of course, he thinks we should keep that around prophylactically just in case. And then we'll worry about future threats with the budget that we don't worry about anyway. So it's it's not an intelligent thing for every American to think that they're qualified to look at the defense of the North American landmass. And even then... I'm working from a loss of I might not have all the available information of certain weapon systems that may be pointing west or east or whatever. We have 300 million people here. You have open access to guns. No one is coming here. Crime rate is low. This is all nonsense. But we need an enemy. You need an enemy or there's no way you can justify the defense budget. I want to see Lockheed Martin building flying cars, not flying bombs. It's not... It's not that we have to have a weapons industry. It's we have to retask the weapons industry and incentivize them to not make weapons. I think there's enough. I don't think we need any more flying bombs. And the flying bombs aren't really they're, – they're causing more of a problem than they're helping anyway. Like in any sense of the word, they're causing more problems. So go ahead and redirect however you okay, want. Okay, yeah. Just, so it occurred to me even you and I are falling into the trap of calling it the defense budget is so number one. It's not defense. It's right. you know military spending. And even right. there, by us, we're saying, oh, we're not talking about the federal budget. We're talking about the military's. Poor. But even there, it's subdivided. So it's not that everybody would just contribute yes or no to the military. They would be much more subdivided problems. So, yeah. Hey, do you want to contribute this year or this month or whatever to maintaining this many troops in Afghanistan? I bet a lot of people would say no. And so it's amazing how quickly. But if you said it now, what about having um, surface-to-air missiles in case 
some Chinese fighter jets somehow get over here. A lot of people say, like, heck yeah, let's, I'll contribute to that. Well, you know. well the one is not an ongoing expense. We are going to risk lives at every month in Afghanistan and we're going to pay for it versus we are going to have a weapon system. It is going to have a maintenance cost. It's just going to sit there and do its job. Mm-hmm. So at, at a certain point, you can get away with a lot of military expenditures because yes, we have the equipment to react to something if we need to. And What's also great about the if it were this type of a proposal or system is different companies like so it's one thing to say, yeah, I'd be willing to pay for a SAM system. But what if then their competitor comes along and says, no, but that actually wouldn't work. We've done our own informal testing or formal tests of their system. They can't hit down anything. We, you know, we put up look at our And so then people start and, and you know, I know some listeners might say, well, the American, you know, the average Joe isn't qualified to, well, the average Joe doesn't know how a car works either. Right. But yet, you know, you can, right. can go to consumer reports, you know, there's name brand recognition. Someone's not going to sell you a car that's going to blow up in your face. So that's. Why doesn't that argument work with the the average voter doesn't know how the ballot box works? Whenever mm-hmm. somebody wants to argue against the system, they think they understand. They immediately start pointing out the flaws. I'm sorry. Why aren't you pointing out the flaws in the ballot box that you rely on so heavily? You, those people don't take their own argument to their own format and then and then make them right. They're not operating under their own terms. They're operating under an externality. And right now we're all operating in a bias where the dollar has the, the damage to the dollar is not necessarily known. It's just externalized to us. And maybe we you know, we have less purchasing power than 30 years ago. But how do you figure it out? The whole goal was to make sure nobody knew how to figure it out. Mm-hmm. When you move the baseline enough. There is no baseline. There is motion and you follow the motion. Well, this goes back to, and it's hard to remember, like, what was it like before, you know, people can talk about taking red pills or whatever. But I think the argument why someone would say, oh, the reason we have representatives is that, yeah, I don't know about military strategy. I don't know about whatever, higher education funding. And I don't know about building roads and I don't know all the stuff the government has to do, quotation marks. And so that's why we delegate it to people. And then they, of course, don't know either. Everybody, like no president could possibly, no human could do all the things and know everything that the president's supposed to be on top of. But they're good, you know, leaders and executives and they delegate and they get the right staffers and advisors. And so the point is, yeah, in any social system, there's a division of labor. There's true experts. And the question is just what way are you going to harness and allow people to hitch their wagon to various types of experts? I think, was it Bakunin or somebody who was saying, you know, as an anarchist, when I say I'm against authority, I mean coercive ones. Like, I can acknowledge the authority of the cobbler by giving him my business. He knows more about that stuff than I do, right. but it's voluntary. It's So when you say you're against authority, you mean it in a very certain way. I look at that as a language problem. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about authority of a cobbler, it's professional competency. When you're talking about authority of the government, it's authoritarian rule. Right. So there's a big difference. So in that case, that is not an equal comparison. They're just using the word authority out of context in relation to. Right. So that was the clarification saying that, yeah, I as an anarchist am against authority. But what I mean is this, it doesn't mean I'm saying nobody knows more about a subject than everybody else. And I break that down. It's simple. It's an archon, no ruler. 
if you put one person in charge, you have a de facto centralization point. You can kill that person. If he was the only competent one, you have a problem. But if he was incompetent, you don't have to kill him. You leave him there and he causes just as many, he causes more problems than if you, if you killed him. So at the end of the day, I, I, every person needs to answer me this question. Why are you not your own representative? And the answer is competency. Then maybe you shouldn't just, you shouldn't be involved in those things. You shouldn't be forced to pay for anything that you're not confident in dealing with and you're forced to. You shouldn't be voting for anything on con- anything you're not confident to deal with, but you're also stuck with. Mm-hmm. You're going to pay for. So disintermediating your representative from both the source of funding and the source of your agency is better for you in both cases. So getting to the place where you should be your own representative to me seems to be the easiest case in the book. The real question is, Better everybody is with the government. It's better the devil you know. What does the change look like, and how do you? Di- if you're going to take your own agency back, you have to do it for you. So it's really I'm suggesting a separate system. We're going to have two: the federal government, and then the other one that everybody will pull their deeds and they will pull their taxes, and it'll be, call it the child system and the adult system. The child system was left over for hundreds of years. Nobody who really knew how to use government uses this one. The adults know how to use government. We're going to be our own representatives. We will volunteer for our own laws. They won't look like the regular map. It'll look like the subscriber map. But we know what we're doing. And then as you get into different layers of law, it goes past legal hygiene. Like a a, a decentralized constitution convention is like a legal hygiene class. You're not you're keeping other people's legal germs off of you. But then legal self-defense is. I know how to keep other people's germs off me. Now I know, now I'm going to keep other people's hands off of me. So you recognize that the system operates in a certain way, kind of like your biology, and you deal with the second law of thermodynamics. You can't legislate past it. Your laws are subject to your laws only. Your laws might mix with my laws because we have a lot in common. Other people's laws won't mix with mine, and we shouldn't argue about it. They fund their stuff. I fund mine. My idea blows up in my face. They get to laugh at me. Their idea blows up in their face. I won't even notice. I wasn't looking. I don't care. I follow my own stuff. But really, we're losing all of our agency to the system, and the system isn't even effectively functioning. So telling everyone, like, because I've seen Milton Friedman go to Peru and say, this is how you fix this. And the information alone is what spoiled the game down there. The political game became less of a game, and the economic game became more well, the average person learned more about economics, so the entire area prospered. And it wasn't about law, and it wasn't about debate. It was about working with each other. And if you didn't like it, you go do something else. And this functions. Milton Friedman did this, and it and it runs just like a special forces mission. So I'm thinking, okay, you run a legal special forces mission in America, and you just teach everybody how to commit legal hygiene and legal self-defense for themselves. That's it. Legal judo is kind of advanced. Somebody else has to try to leverage you and then you're going to use their leverage to fling them in a legal sense. Mm-hmm. But that's more advanced. You have property. You understand advanced legal concepts. You're you're not 14 years old and big enough to crush someone's skull with a brick, but then aren't taught what civil society is about. And you don't have to agree to not murder. I'm not saying you shouldn't be taught. You know, some of this stuff is such common sense. I hate the fact that it's a contract. But if it's not a contract... You end up with an authoritarian legal system that it will invent legal concepts that you are then stuck with, which they claim will protect you, which in reality is just a fraud surface for the system to process you in what appears to be an objective manner. But right. you'll just you'll be processed anyway, objective or not. 
So for the listeners, I'm just going to admit we're doing stream of consciousness here. We're, we're, we, we keep circling back, but Donna keeps bringing up stuff that reminds me of interesting little anecdotes. You mentioned, you know, it, was, it wasn't so much changing this, it was just like injecting truth. And you said that before about if there's a corrupt system, like just the truth, you know, is so powerful. And there's all kinds of great metaphors. People you like, it, you know, if you're in a dark room, you just light a candle. No amount of darkness can stop the candle. You know what I'm saying? Like there's, there's something there about the power of light and and truth. So I'm not trying to run. I know you're Catholic, right? I'm not trying to run. The I'm not, no, I'm not Catholic. Oh, okay. I good. was raised Catholic. Oh, you were, okay. Then we're good. So how about this? There are people right now in the Amazon and in Indonesia where they've been there for 10,000 years. Like there are, I'm not being, I, there's some people out there who are really nice and I want, I'm not, I'm not being, I know how to be pejorative. I'm good at it. Not this time. So for 10,000 years in the Amazon rainforest and in Indonesia, there have been Smurfs, Smurf-like people. They don't know modern society at all. Now, like C-3PO in an Ewok village, what do you think the Catholic church used to do 700 years ago? They would show up with a cannon and a man dressed in gold robes and they would walk into these Smurfs and tell them about your powerful God and light off the cannon and suddenly you have a bunch of converts. Well, that's how, uh, listen, that is how that organization known as the Vatican operated for a long time. They would scare simple people into submission and cause an entire religious movement. The government functions as a religion. There is no... There is no no one at the top to go and get. I mean, there are there's there's the Pope and there's cardinals at the top and there's a president and there's congressmen at the top. But you can't shoot Jesus and you can't shoot the government. Like at a certain point, there is this fictitious legal entity that doesn't exist, but will be told, well, this is where all of the accountability for these actions lies. It doesn't lie on the humans. It doesn't lie on the servants. It relies on this fictitious entity. Okay. That's it. It's we're not done. the president. It's the office of the presidency. That's right. It's yeah. the office of the presidency that we're questioning yeah. today. I don't not respect the, Bill Clinton, but I do respect the office of the presidency. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And and at a certain point, like at what point are you just making excuses for a system that doesn't work? At what point are you making excuses for your own ineptitude? At what point do you just not know what's going on and want to have some mm-hmm. say in the matter? I, I'm not being pejorative against anybody at this point. It's the system doesn't work. And it needs to be functionally rewritten for every reason that can be imagined. So the question is, why is the argument about the old system? Why do we continually talk fallaciously about the old system in a manner in which it could never work? Now, instead of that, we'll have a talk about it's 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 pro-life and it's pro-choice. It's not anti-abortion and pro-abortion. And it's not a legal scam or legal schematic that we could all sit down and go over. It's not that. And you cut your line here and I'll cut my line here and you fund here and I'll fund there. It's not that. It's a we're going to fight with each other because that's what the system demands. And the lawyers are making tons of money. Every time a law changes, the, the legal system gets to oscillate. And um, in the same way that uh, waves, there's there's certain green energy developments where they'll use wave, uh, wave motion to generate energy. Every time you change law. You, all the lawyers get wave motion of the law has oscillated. So now they get a bunch of money that's going to come into them to re-adjudicate that thing. And then another legal change. And they'll get another wave motion of now we get to re-adjudicate that thing again. So it just keeps going. And that's the kill all the lawyers. That's that's where I'm really at with this. It's the the, the profession of lawyer needs to disappear from American society the same way that the the profession of Wainwright went away after Henry Ford automated the the the, the automation or the the automobile process, 
There aren't a bunch of people making wagons because there are a bunch of cars. There needs to not be a bunch of lawyers because everyone is their own representative. You don't need another representative in a legal system that requires lawyers for you to defend yourself adequately and uh, limits your participation so that you functionally have less agency than a, than a senator. You should have as much agency as a senator and you don't. So how do you bring yourself up to the level of senator instead of bringing a, a senator down to your level? You can prosecute a senator, but you can't get the whole population to have senatorial privilege. So it's better to give everybody senatorial privilege than it is to let the Senate knock the senators down a peg. Everybody's screwed. Bring everybody up a peg. Now the senator is herd immune from his own privilege. Mm -hmm. So using these mechanics against the people who think, you know, I don't think senators are trying to get privilege. The system gives it to them. And then that privilege gets abused. And then everybody says, well, it's a system. Like, mm -hmm. okay, your own agency, your own responsibility, your money anyway might as well start looking at what changes actually do this. Yeah. Before I forget the anecdote I want to tell you though, about the, just the truth alone often is enough is I was listening to an interview on, I think it was NPR or something. And in fairness, I think probably the reason NPR was playing this was they wanted to gin up, you know, suspicion of North Korea. Like I think that was, but in any event, I think the guy was sincere. He had been in North Korea and escaped was a defector and they're asking him like, what, what, and he was actually in like the propaganda unit. And, um, and he said that they, what made him finally realize to leave, you know, and because there, there's stuff too about, you know, threatening your family or whatever, but finally made him just say, I got to get out of this system right. is he came across a photo that they were using for propaganda purposes. And it was, it was of a labor strike in South Korea. Mm -hmm. And the point of the, you know, the reason the government was passing this around saying like, let's use this you know, to tell North Koreans, look at how good you have it here down there in South Korea. Like, look at how they, they treat their worker, whereas the workers here are happy. Like that, right. was, that was where they were coming from. And this guy said he looked at the thing and he was amazed because he said, number one, the workers were allowed to protest, whereas that wouldn't have happened. And then he noticed in the background, there were normal people driving cars in the background of the photo. Right. And he said that was one of like party officials in North Korea. And then he looked and saw that one of the workers had a ballpoint pen in his pocket. He was like, oh, I can't even imagine being that wealthy that regular people are walking around with pens in their pockets. Are you kidding me? And so I think what happened there was the higher ups who were the elites in North Korea, they didn't even realize how poor their subjects were. They didn't even realize, oh, you can't let them see a picture of the guys down there across the border with ballpoint pens. Otherwise, they're all going to jump ship. Yeah. And so like, they, you know, in terms, and also just showed like the control of the information they had. So there, it wasn't a matter of, Oh, I stumbled across a Thomas Sowell essay. It was I saw a photo of a guy in South Korea with a ballpoint pen. Right, right. It, you you aren't going to come up with with some new theory of of how shit works. You've got a really good understanding of how all Earth processes kind of function. Some guy who's never seen a ballpoint pen is the guy who's going to figure out he needs to get the hell out of here. He's still not going to know macroeconomics to save his ass, but he'll save his ass because of a pen. Mm -hmm. So it becomes. Like what you consider obvious and what somebody else considers obvious, they're completely different. I found that out a lot with this. Like I tell people you could be your own representative and they tell me I'm crazy. I'm like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Do you not realize that every single portion of everything you just said screws you and everyone else? So how do you think the system works when it doesn't? Fundamentally, mm -hmm. it doesn't. But then it caught then the manner in which it stays alive is through you know financial chicanery and intentional destruction of a currency 
why are all of these things not germane to the thing? And you find out that most people rely on their, their political knowledge is from an eighth grade civics lesson. And it's what's interesting too, is if you ask like, like what was John Kenneth Galbraith's big thing, like the difference between the public and the private infrastructure and spending. And it was like, Oh, all the public things like education, roads, whatever are all in disrepair. Whereas, you know, the, the private stuff is all fully funded. And like, that was always just the reason, Oh, that's why we need more taxes. That's why we need more spending. Instead of saying, wait a minute, it does seem to be kind of a coincidence that all the stuff that it's, the government is in charge of funding is always crappy. And the stuff that's handled in the private sector is pretty good. It's the sleight of hand between cost and value. When the thing that the public sector is supposed to sh- put, produce doesn't show up, the value is not felt regardless of whether or not the cost was incurred. In the private sector, the cost will, if something shows up, the cost was incurred, but you had to pay for it. So it's the only reason it showed up. Mm-hmm. So basically somebody took some risk with some money and then they created a, a cycle that will just self-sustain. I don't understand socialists who scream about profit. If your business is not profitable, it will just stop. That's it. You can't run it at some margin of, of nominal zero and you're a good person. No. One mar- one month, you'll have a 30% deficit and you will need to have saved two 15% extra months just to cope with that one. So you have to have an understanding of the cycle ups and downs. And then you have to save for bad times and you have to run at a profit all of the time. So you have these people who are hating on profit because, I mean, a socialist wouldn't know capitalism if it brought them strawberries in the winter. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't know what it looked like, even if it's at their grocery aisle the whole time, because it's not even season for strawberries, but you could buy them. They don't understand the coordination that goes into getting, you know, intercontinental strawberries, not a problem for the socialist. Anything that will offend you in a coffee house, real socialist problem. So... I don't understand where the where the the disintermediation between I don't understand economics at all. I understand one school. I don't understand government at all. I think I understand eighth grade civics. All of these arguments come together in a car accident known as a ballot. That's it. And it's and even the ballot, it should say, you know, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or both or neither. And, and of course, none of those options are there. You can't send Clinton and Trump to Washington as Veep and, and president to keep an eye on each other. You can't just fire them both and say, nope, we're going to do the election over. Right. And that what occurred to me here is, again, I'm trying to get in the head of somebody. It would seem like, you know, the, there's the standard thing now is to be enfranchised. And people say, oh, you know, the Republicans in this, they're trying to disenfranchise black voters or whatever. And, and that's why the vote is so important to people and we can, you know, you and I can see this, this clearly the system's not producing the results that anybody would have wanted. Like even the people who go vote every two years, clearly if you ask them, are you happy with the results? They would say, of course not. And so what's interesting about your proposal is, isn't that enfranchising people far more than they could possibly imagine in their, in their system, maybe once in a while they vote for the winner when the two choices were not ones that they might have wanted either, and and like it's you know once in a while the lesser of two evils wins in my book, but once in a while the greater of two evils wins, and that's it. Whereas with your system, no, you get to how much do you want to spend? You know, give to Planned Parenthood. How much do you want to give to the war on drugs? How much? Or maybe you think heroin should be illegal and cocaine, but not marijuana. You can you can make those fine nuanced decisions, just like you can decide. 
It's not like, oh, do you buy meat or not at the grocery store? No, some people buy chicken. Some people buy veal. Some people buy steak. It's not just meat, yes or no. And it's certainly not everyone in your town decides for the next two years, are we all going to eat chicken every night? Or are we all going to eat meat? It, like if you use the, the political process for anything else in your life, like imagine having an election to pick your babysitter. That'd be terrifying. And yet right. that's how we pick the person with the quote nuclear football. It's it's insane. That Ron Paul killed the the heroin argument. If we legalize heroin tomorrow, are you going to go and do it? No? Okay, then. It's not going to be nearly as big of a problem as people think. But the, econ- the it's not even the economics of heroin. It's if you have the paradigm where you're allowed to mess with the economics of heroin, you can probably mess around with the economics of sugar. And you could probably mess around with the economics of your currency, which means you can use the SWIFT system to enslave people. So it's really more of a power problem where how do you how do you disintermediate a power system without creating a power vacuum? You give every single individual their little bit back and say that the aggregation of our social agency is causing more problems than solving. So we'll take it all back from to our own individual place. We'll direct it. We'll we will put our funds directly where it needs to go. Now we'll see what America actually contributes to. Mm-hmm. And I'll just, you know, defense will get funded. It'll get funded out of panic before people don't fund it out of uh, stubbornness. Right, or free riding. Yeah. But a bunch of the minor social stuff that happens on the federal level, that'll go away. There's a bunch of federal agencies that are executive agencies only. They don't require congressional approval to get rid of them. They were created by the executive. They can be destroyed by the executive. Why isn't any presidential candidate running on the first thing that goes are the executive agencies? That's a big start mm-hmm. because because nobody's going to be allowed to be a president and destroy those agencies at the same time. They're not going to be allowed. They're, the system will push back. Nancy Pelosi's has has money coming in through one of those agencies. I don't know which one. If you use the phrase nepotistic corrupt law and you apply it to a, a sheriff's department, you have too many family members behind a badge that are causing problems in the legal system. If you use that with a one line in Medicare, there'll be this line in Medicare that has this whole group of people getting subsidized by Medicare because there's not an Oxford comma. And because that people aren't getting are getting subsidized, Nancy Pelosi has a check coming in once a quarter, period. Now, I'm not saying it's Nancy. Somebody is setting up the law to put their campaign financing on autopilot because the system allows it. So at a certain point, now you can start making pragmatic arguments. I want my senator to do that because I want them actually doing stuff. So they need to put their campaign finance on autopilot. And if the taxpayer has to do that, okay. All right. Well, now you can rationalize anything. From there, it doesn't matter. Hillary Clinton has been ardently lying to people for 30 years. Lying to people for 30 years, never mind her politics. How do you, how do you vote for her? How do you vote for a representative who you know to be fraud when the only purpose of a representative is to not be fraud? How does this? Well, the answer is because typically in the election, it's between her and someone else who people perceive as a pathological liar who supports policies they hate. So I'd rather vote for the liar that's going to occasionally get closer to what I want than the liar who doesn't. And at that point, you're paying for two liars and told that neither isn't an option. At what right. point are we just a bunch of idiots? Right. At what point is the voter the problem? And I'm there. Yeah. I was the, pro- I, I'm willing to blame me. I'm the dumbest adult on earth. 
if I continue to do this, I will be objectively stupid. I can prove it. Why is anyone else not coming with me? Let's, you know, that just kind of looking at it in that sense of you're not the problem. I'm the problem, but I'm dumb. So maybe you should not be as dumb as me and we'll go in this direction. And that's, that's kind of where I'm kind of shuffling yeah. things. Okay. So just a couple of trains of thought from before. So one thing was the whole, there's a blockchain. You're right. I probably, I mean, that's, it was developed for Bitcoin, but it has application very quickly. It means that there's this public ledger. So something that can be downloaded, can, copies can exist in different computers. It's a public thing that's up there. It's not that some company's in charge of it. And there's ways that we won't get into that the community can verify whether a legitimate person has made a, you know, can change the, the native, what's written on the, on this public ledger. Let's put it that way. And so that goes along with what your vision is. What's the relationship? How does the blockchain involved in, in terms of this idea of everyone becoming their own representative and voting in different buckets? Everything that happens in Congress is supposed to be done in public anyway. No more of this pretend, oh, I'm an adult and I have the right information, but we got to wait to put it out because prosecutorial reasons, right? Again, if you have exculpatory information against against a Julian Assange and it's not in the public right now, mm-hmm. you're kind of a problem. If you have evidence that would convict Assange and it's not in the public right now, you're part of the problem. We can report on this stuff, but as soon as somebody has the power to hide it behind a secret, it's a lie again. It's a lie. Justice can happen transparently or it can happen behind closed doors. Where do you think it actually happens? Guide me here a little bit. I just can't see how the how the system can survive anymore without total transparency. And now there's a technology here that says all of these documents will be done completely in the public objectively written to hundreds, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain has a hundred thousand different nodes up. So these people are, these nodes are all passing around the same copy of a ledger within 10 minutes of each other. So you're getting a piece of it. You're getting a copy of a piece of information. I'm getting the same thing. And the manner in which the system was put, system was put together is these are the same. They might be wrong, but they're the same and they're in the ledger and everybody has the same copy. We're not saying that Bitcoin is wrong. We're not saying the ledger is wrong. We're saying everybody gets the same information and and the system is designed to give everybody. So if you show up and say, you know, hi, I'm, my name's Donnie. You got this little blockchain file. I, I signed this contract on this day. I understand I will not rape. I will not murder. I am now a representative of myself in the Republic of America. The end. Basic human rights. Sign up. You get an ID and that's it. If you make the constant, if you make that social contract more complicated, it's bundling. You're trying to bull, you're trying to drag somebody into more social involvement through contract. And the goal is if you do this openly, you only titrate, you, you intentionally say, we're only agreeing on the first three things. No murder, no rape, no theft. Socialists might have an argument with the definitions of theft. Mm-hmm. So we would, we might have that, but. But we can get human rights down to where we're not assaulting each other in a basic document. And if all the com, now you can, you can verify this better. Uh, communism does not require a country, doesn't require a nation. It doesn't require borders. It's an economic system. If every communist on the planet was to choose one cryptocurrency and they were to only ever trade in that cryptocurrency, all of their economic value would pump into this coin and pump out of it if they sold it. You know, Austrian theory, 
some of the communists are saving their coin. So they have some in a wallet and some of them are trading with their coin. And so some of it has money velocity and some of it is sitting still. But if all of the communists in the whole world picked one coin and they only use that coin, they didn't, they didn't take your coin. You go pay the conversion rate. Let's say they use Litecoin. You go pay the conversion rate for Bitcoin or you go pay your, however, however you get your Litecoin, only communists take Litecoin. They could practice the, the socialists would have to solve the coordination problem. They would have to get all the socialists on board to only use Litecoin. But then socialism the world over is, is cohesive. We are all using this economic system. All of our economic and all of our chickens, all of our cars, all everything that communism produces pumps into this one coin. And the only way you can get it is to buy that coin. All the communists are effectively working together. They solved the con- they solved that coordination problem because the only economic thing they had to do was was currency. And all of the other economic energy they did was was mediated through the price discovery of that. Am I off? Uh, I guess. Well, but I'm not sure what what we mean by communist because, like, if they're looking at some guy but, see, down the street with a big we're not farm, exactly. they might say, "Those I'm going to take those that guy's chickens because I'm a communist and he doesn't have the right to keep those chickens." So, so again, what I'm saying is, we all agree: no murder, no rape, no theft. Now, the communists might, but let's assume they don't argue over theft. How would they? How would the socialists all coordinate together? So that they could absolutely determine whether or not socialist works. They have to discipline themselves to all use the same currency. And it can't have fraud services like the dollar. Like the, the dollar is a manipulable. Um, so it, you're using that for, when you say fraud services, you mean way like vulnerabilities, ways someone could come in and. Right. You have a wallet on you. I can steal your wallet X amount of ways. I can also fail stealing your wallet in an infinite number of ways. So you only look at the the fraud service of you losing your wallet only has a finite number of possibilities. So we don't have to discuss the nonsense. Well, communism fails. Socialism fails in all kinds of ways. But if you want to the, the real problem I, I see is a capitalist is required to solve the coordination problem to do anything. And the socialist seems to think that the coordination problem is supposed to come together through people coming together. Okay. But if you don't understand how any of this stuff works, then the cat, I mean, I only see a capitalist, somebody who prints money, or I'm sorry, not prints money, plants money, like a farmer. Mm -hmm. A capitalist is someone who plants, plants money and then raises a crop of money. That's it. We've heard a hundred different pejorative definitions of the word capitalist. I'm just looking at somebody who has capital. They want a retirement. So they invest a little bit and they get a return on the investment and they take it out of the investment and then they move that capital somewhere else. That's it. How many socialists call capitalism pejorative? They're, they're, they hate the system because they think it works in a certain way. They don't understand socialist systems. I mean, again, Bernie and AOC don't understand socialist systems enough to correct them, but they advertise to the American people, give us, give me a pension, give me pay, and I will try to make this happen for you when they can't seem to coordinate it on their own. And I'm just saying, if we start accepting the idea that the coordination problem is real, and that we can't have a centralized system of law that will just fix it for us because it's not that little bit of education. And then the little bit of spine, it says it takes to say, I'm going to be my own representative. Just those two things will cause a lot of the, of what we, you and I understand to be politics to just be a moot point. We don't do it like that anymore. The end. We do need to wrap up eventually here. So why don't you start? So you, you have a book, right? The, the book is free. 
I'm not trying to make any money. One of the, one of the things that we have a problem is IP and law. It, uh, the Constitution is intellectual property. The founding fathers signed it. We're all stuck with it. We're not allowed to rewrite it. So I put cryptocurrency addresses in the book. The book is free. It's it's free on Barnes and Noble. It's 99 cents on Amazon because Amazon's being that way. But I put cryptocurrency addresses in the book. This is how you secure your own IP. And this is how you sure you, I wrote a book. If I'm going to get paid, it's going to be through those addresses. That's it. But an economic barrier to entry for this book is kind of a problem. I mean, everybody in America pay for my education anyway. So here you go. Here's here's the culmination of what is an intelligence analyst who knows how to rip a government apart think of your political system. Here's a free book. Mm-hmm. The book is literally it's legal. What's the high, title? A direct republic: the null hypothesis of politics. Mm-hmm. So the whole the whole functioning here is what happens. What's a system look like that's not a system? When you have a problem and I have a problem, we coordinate together to solve that problem. And this problem is law. So you, I don't get any of your laws and you don't get any of my laws. That way, my bad ideas don't end up in your, in your lap unless you volunteered for the same stupidity that I did. And this doesn't apply to everybody. Most people don't have stupid laws. My guess is that if if everybody in America was to get a mass blast of information, say we're all going to be our own representatives. The first 18 laws, everybody is completely on board with. Nobody cares. Nobody's going to argue with about, it. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. After that is where you start seeing the divisions. So we can all intelligently agree to not murder each other. And, and that first bunch of the first group of laws, we're all in, we're all in. We're not going to let anybody, like, it's not a, it's not so much a philosophical debate. We're not going to let cannibals live here. The end. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen. It's not, it's not a debate. And just something I developed in chaos theory, not that I was the first person in history to say this, but I mean, just that some of these problems are actually, it's more like uh, it's a problem in theory, but not in practice. This thing of like incompatible laws. And so, yeah, if there's, if there are people who say, no, I'm, I'm keeping my options open. Maybe I will murder. Okay. We can deal, you know, it's a separate question of what ultimately, quote, would be done with this group. But clearly, if you own an apartment building, you're not renting to that guy. Right. If you own a shopping mall, you're going to say you're not welcome on these premises. All right. So you contain the problem pretty quickly if people actually have the right to exclude from their private property. Right. Right. Uh, Cannibals aren't a real problem. But if you assume that every problem you have is as bad as a cannibal, how do you fix it? Well, there's a line there. Not every problem is as bad as a cannibal. So you, so you, now you have two groups. What do you do with cannibals? Let's not have the, uh, like, so I, I, I say things like, yeah, those people should be killed. I don't mean any of that. Shit. I am a firm advocate of the island. Okay. If you have cannibals, you put them on an island. All humans have a right to exist to include cannibals. You put all the cannibals on an island. It's a self-serving problem and it's a self-serving solution. They will deal with their own. You subject cannibalism to its own rules and you get fewer cannibals because they eat each other. So you take the murderers, you put them on the same island because, well, nature, you know what I mean? Humans get to go live in nature if they can't be civil. And we're going to do that anyway. It's not even an argument. We're, we're going to have prisons. Why have the upkeep and maintenance of a prison for the theory that, well, it's inhumane treatment to put them in nature? Well, if they don't know how to behave in civil, civil society, maybe nature isn't so bad of a, a punishment. Yeah. And just again, to hit that point, it's people get tied up in knots about, well, gee, do we have the authority to go and grab these people and put them in a paddy wig? And I'm the point I was trying to make in chaos theory, and I do it the Mises U lectures on the market for security, is to say, and, and when I'm talking about a quote, voluntary prison, 
It's no, it's not that we're grabbing people that we don't like who are pariahs and then putting them over here in this thing that we built. It's that we're all each thing as property owners to these, you know, to cannibals where like, you know, get off my land. And then there'd be a market opportunity. Somebody who may not even be a cannibal would wait. There's a bunch of cannibals. They're not allowed to stand anywhere. Right. And so, or if you're living in your own little, you know, you say, oh, what if they bought a house before they announced to the world they're can Okay, but now no one's selling them electricity. They can't go to the grocery store. So there's a little island surrounded. So somebody right. could build, you know, buy up an island or whatever, or build up, you know, even thing was surrounded with like large walls and whatever. So the rest, the neighboring communities would be okay. And then tell cannibals, come live here. This is where it gets really complicated because there's a bunch of federal systems and then there's a bunch of local systems. They don't operate the same. Your local law enforcement doesn't operate like federal law enforcement. So you try comparing the one and, and you don't end up with good comparisons. So there, uh, let's go to the extremes of each case. You have cannibals and then you have people who want to like cheeky anarchists who don't want to sign the contract. Mm-hmm. I don't have to sign it. You don't, you can't make me. I Fine. think most people think even cheeky anarchists are worse than cannibals, Honestly. especially on Facebook. And, yeah. and that's what I'm saying. In this case, we're going to look the anarchists in the face and say, you don't understand. You're going to sign this one or you're going to the island. The end. Now, that sounds really authoritarian, except this is agreeing to not murder. So if we can't sleep because you can't be trusted, maybe we're just going to move you to the island and you, we're going to test your anarchism all the way out. And and that sounds a little authoritarian, but at that point, I don't think anybody really cares about the anarcho-capitalist trying to make a, a point by not signing the I don't murder contract. I don't I, I think we're in so far in exception territory at that point, I'm not worried about it. Then you come down to this guy isn't a cannibal, and, and there it is in chaos theory. He's not a cannibal, he recognizes he screwed up. He's got $118,000 to pay back, and he's gonna be working at that for at least three years. So he's living in these court, you know. He's living at this voluntary prison and that Mm. voluntary prison is how he's paying it all back. And he's agreed, you know, he screwed up. He agreed to a lot of this. So the voluntary prison isn't that bad of idea, especially when exclusion from civil society is one of the things that you face from not doing it. And a prison is not exclusion from civil society. A lot of people would happily go to prison than rather live on the street. Mm -hmm. They would rather have three hots in a cot than be out in the cold. So we're saving this prison here for these things are problems in society that no one wants around. We can't, we have, we have to afford a maintenance. We would have to afford a prison to, to supposedly, right? Three hots in a cot is not humane treatment. I'm sorry. That's, that's literally a bed and breakfast. So if you're unwilling to say we will not take our murderers and place them into nature, I don't know how you're going to deal with that problem. I really don't. But I don't think that the island or a prison on said island, there's a lot of very economically sound ways to make sure that you're not guarding. Like in America, there's two million prisoners. That's a huge problem. That's a, it's not just two million people. It's the cost of trying to house and feed two million people on a budget. Again, whatever you do is going to have a budget. And in a facility where they can't just walk away. Right. It'd be a lot cheaper like to have a. But here's the thing. If you got somebody who's in there for nonviolent offenses and maybe did like you have this statutory laws that they're not real. This is this was statutory violation. Nobody got hurt. The state put this guy in a jail. You don't need a jail for this guy. This guy could go home and nobody cares. Mm -hmm. Then you got this feral animal that kills people. And now you have to run a prison because of it. Maybe you should just put the feral animal on the island and never bother the other guy, other guy to begin with. Um, Ross Ulbricht is the perfect example of this guy was selling drugs on the Internet. 
or just facilitating putting right. putting facilitating. buyers and sellers together. Facilitating yeah. buyers and sellers put together gets accused of of putting out a hit on someone and then is prosecuted for drug trafficking after being accused of a hit that he was that like the hit was just this it was the media the media piece. yeah, yeah. They, they dropped those charges. yes they yeah. dropped the charges all of it was complete horse shit. that guy is in prison and he's been there for a couple of years i have i have seriously thought about getting a dozen guys together and going and break them out of prison because this is bullshit but then again everyone will look at me and my 12 friends like we're lunatics they're not going to suddenly think that ross Ulbricht is is a good guy and that the american prison system isn't stupid anymore they won't they won't. Even if it was a successful raid and no guards were killed and the whole thing went off. Nope. Nobody's going to love the whole thing. Nobody. And that's really, really, really irritating that nobody would somehow love that and everybody would be pissed off about it. Yet it's clearly the wrongest thing to do. Kim Kardashian gets her name all over the news when she's naked and oiled. She has been getting people for nonviolent drug offenses put out, get out of prison ever since Trump mm-hmm. went up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can't get a, can't get a decent headline now that she has her clothes on. So, the real problem is people don't seem to know what and the problems are. Also, what's crazy about that is, and I don't know what his motivations are, but I mean, this idea of the Trump's a white supremacist when he used to be buddies with Jesse Jackson and he's, you know, dealing with Kanye and whatever. And, you know, fog doing, of war. I mean, it's it's amazing. Fog of war. And yes, I'm not a fan of Trump, everybody, as you know, but it's just right. funny fog, how this works. Fog of war. Disinformation. You, If you got no ammunition against the guy, you take his name in vain. That's it. And because it's politics, it will work. If you can trick enough people to not vote for Trump because they think he's a white supremacist because they're stupid, guess what? You still get voters. Mm-hmm. So you have this huge fraud surface of intellect on every every possible logical fallacy has a bunch of people voting for it. Every possible bad piece of information has more voters jumping on it. Every piece, every single domino in your Rube Goldberg machine in your gym, every single one of them has a fraud surface that you can mess with people. And then you have to say that the I spent 19 years, one month, 12 days in the military, and I have a $4 million education from the DOD. Mm-hmm. Who else is supposed to know this? Mm-hmm. Like, really? Really? At what point do you look at your fellow man and expect them to keep up? It's, it's, I, I, it took me a long time. It took me a long time to realize I have a $4 million education and I should not recognize my fellow man to mm-hmm. try to keep up with this bullshit. So that's, but, and that's what you're trying to do in the book. You're trying to get people to see how this would work. Exactly that. It's if you, you were, if you are your own representative, those fraud surfaces, they don't exist. The fraud surface is your own problem and your own issues and your own stupid. And that is the best way that I can prevent me from hurting you with any law that mm-hmm. I think is a good idea is only make it apply to me. And in terms of, let me just elaborate a little bit, because I thought of this in my own, like for my own processes and stuff that, yeah, somebody declared, and by the way, you know, it's, I, I know there's some people bristling, no, I don't want to sign no social care. When you rent a car, you sign and agree to a bunch of terms and conditions. Right. When you check into a hotel, you sign a bunch of, you don't even look at it. Right. So it's, you go through your life signing stuff, agreeing to contracts all the time. And so it's not crazy for a community to say, if you're going to live and walk among us, we want you to agree you're not going to commit what we call homicide. And, oh, it's your arbitrary. No, we're going to, like you say, there's there's codes. Just like um, if people are going to hire someone to do, like have a, a contract and they go and Google for like form contracts. You know what I'm saying? Like people don't invent contracts off the top of their head. They realize this is something, let me go online or, or even like vows at a wedding or something. Yeah, you customize it. 
but you might first brainstorm. So let me see what some other wedding vows look like. Oh, okay. That, yeah, that sounds good. And that's what we're talking here when, when you're saying people would, you know, post this. And then in terms of the enforcement or whatever, or the social ostracism, you're right. If somebody said, I'm not agreeing that I'm going to refrain from what the rest of you call homicide. To me, I just call that, you know, survival of the fittest or whatever, you know, some guys reading Nietzsche or whatever, then not only is everyone going to boycott him, but if there's a few people who deal with him, they might be subject to the boycott too. They would say, not only am I going to boycott economically somebody who's literally walking around saying he's a murderer, but even somebody who rents to that guy, what you're renting. Where in contrast, the U.S. government like telling cu- countries, if you buy oil from Iran, we're you know we're going to punish you. I mean, normal people would not take it to that level. So it's the kind of thing where these sanctions would be applied would be really heinous things that 99.9% agree. Yeah. Like you can't do that. That's horrible. Right. And like you say, once the consensus breaks apart, then there's a gray area, but that's precisely where you'd want it to be. You know, when it comes to like, exactly. Should, should someone who gets an abortion when she's 18, should people refuse to sell her food 12 years later when they learn about that? Well, now opinions divided. And that's precisely why she wouldn't end up on the Island with the cannibals. Exactly. It- so I'm going to pick on the cops because if they can't handle it, too bad. Um, the AR platform, okay, five, five, six, NATO round. This whole round, this round is designed to spall. I shoot it at you. It hits you. It bounces off one of your bones. It goes over there and hits someone else. The whole round is designed to do that. Can anyone tell me why any cop in America uses them? That round is specifically designed for me to protect myself and for me to hurt everything over there. Everywhere I fire, that that round is going, Okay. So now we objectively, we have an entire group of cops who don't understand the procurement of weapons and they don't understand what weapons they are supposed to take to work. They don't understand that because if they did, they'd realize showing up in public with an AR means you're a Bush League idiot. You are not a warrior cop. You are a civilian. You are supposed to not have the kind of offensive hardware protecting people in a residential neighborhood that I would have on another in another continent, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Then you have the other end. You have these SWAT guys who always smell like pot, always have too much facial hair, and will rip you out of a car at 7 o'clock in the morning on your way to get a pack of cigarettes because they're not going to invade your house, right? They're not these idiot warrior cops that will flashbang your house and go into that place and conduct a raid. They are people who will raid your car because you're not paying attention because you haven't had your, you haven't had your coffee in the morning yet. And they're going to, they're going to execute that warrant one way or the other. What's the difference between Bush League idiots doing it and, and professionals doing it? The professionals don't look like what you think they do and the amateurs do. So this happens in every aspect of every game we're going to play. You have these people who think they're doing the right thing and they're doing it wrong. Then you have these other people who everybody thinks they're doing it wrong. They're absolute professionals. If this can be as bad with it as it can be with cops, how are you going to separate all of these issues for all of these untrained people? You know what I mean? I know where I was kind of going with it. It's really, there's the responsibility aspect and then there's the competency aspect. And you have to cover both. Otherwise, all of this is going to blow up. Like none of none of it, Matt, it's already blowing up. So understanding your own place in it and then getting to that place is the place you have to go. And, and there's just no, there's no really getting around that in any way. There's, you have to understand your, your bailiwick. You have to understand someone else's. So when when all of these fraud services are taken away and you find out that you're the problem, you don't know how this mm-hmm. stuff works, it clears up really fast. 
You will, you will work on you just to avoid looking dumb in front of your friends. Everybody does that. So it's really more a matter of what, you know, this is, it's better the devil, you know, you better understand what I'm saying before you do it. And there's, it's, it's all there. Um, Deeding systems do not need to belong to the state. If, if they don't have the power to tax, they don't have the power of eminent domain over you. They don't have the power to take land. They don't have any power anymore. So then it's just, how do we, how do we disintermediate the systems? You can hostile witness, take it from there. I'm just, (laughs) well, at some point, you know, there's a cost benefit here of, um, you know, if if the, if the episode's too long, people won't start it. So I think they, if, if we've intrigued people, they should go to your book. That's where you flesh this stuff out. Yes. Okay. And there is there, and there, I assume there's ways that they can contact you. I, I, my website is the null hypothesis of politics.com. And I'm, I'm basically, if you, if you can't read that book and get rid of your, if you, if there's anybody out there and you're saying my city council is garbage, it's not just you. It's not just you. It has to be your movement. There's several places in Texas. They have corruption problems. They might want to get rid of that city council. Mm-hmm. Read the book. If you can't figure it out, then send me an email. The okay. whole point is is for as many of these things to happen on their own because some adult in that bailiwick didn't know how, but they wanted to, and they're going to show everybody how to do it. Okay. So all this, yes, the way to contact Donnie, his website and his book, we'll have it at bobmurphyshow.com slash 42. Now you've, you've listened this long, folks. Little tree at the end. Are you, can you talk about the, the your Captain America hypothesis? Are you oh, allowed? To, oh yeah. Well, all yeah, right. We'll do so that. this is another. I mean, because this he's a man of many. Uh, he, he thinks a lot. He thinks about a lot of stuff. If you have not seen Avengers Endgame, stop this right now. You're not allowed to listen to any more. Like this is more serious than cannibalism. Okay, because you don't want. <laughs> I wouldn't want to do this. I signed a social contract that I would not put any spoilers out, and I don't want to end up on the island. Quite frankly, all right. So I need you to stop. For those of you who have seen it. Then Donnie had an interesting theory that he shared because there's a, there's a few strange things that go on in that movie and you don't know was that just really sloppy writing or are they trying to so go ahead take it all from right here. to me there's there's three scenes in the movie and they happen in order A is Captain America hopping into the elevator and stealing the scepter he says right. hail Hydra. he says hail Hydra right. the second thing that happens right after that is Loki escapes with the Gets Tesseract, the tesseract right. and the next thing that happens after that is Captain America fights Captain America. And what's funny is the one guy says, I have eyes on Loki and the audience thinks he's mistaken. Like, oh, he thinks it's Loki, but really it's him from the future. So so the way the movie is presented is A, B, C, right? C yeah. is where Captain America is fighting. Yeah. A happens and then B happens. So technically Loki escapes after Captain America steals us after. But yeah. if you look at these, just this one scene, A and B, and you flip them around, they don't really change the timeline at all. So it could have been Loki escaping. And then Captain America showing up to get the scepter. Mm-hmm. What bothered me was in, in scene C, Captain America knocks out Captain America with the scepter. Mm-hmm. That's not a Captain America trick. That's a Loki trick. Right. So it made me start thinking that Loki had escaped and stolen the scepter and stolen the Tesseract. And then everything goes quiet from there. Black Widow dies and everybody gets sad and Tony talks to his father. And nobody goes back to thinking about this for a long time. And then you go all the way to the end of the movie. Well, and then Captain America steals pin particles. Mm-hmm. So that just happens in the middle. And then you go all the way to the end. Captain America picks up the hammer. Captain America throws lightning. Thor says, I knew it. Mm-hmm. And then he says, here you have the little one. So this all goes to my own personal that my, my own personal stance on this is that Loki is the is the Norse god of war. 
The Norse did not have a god of war. They had a god of mischief. But Loki has three children. The, the world serpent that protects Midgard, which is the shield. The wolf that kills Odin. The dog of war that kills Odin. The sword. And death itself. Hell. And hell, it's, hell is named, well, in, in the MCU, it's Hela, but in, uh, in the Norse mythology, it's hell. And hell means hidden. So all warfare is based on deception. I'm just saying Loki is the Norse god of war. And you watch this through Captain America. Captain America, he first is unworthy of the hammer, and then he is worthy of the hammer, and then he doesn't need the hammer. Well, you see Loki coming along of isn't worthy of the hammer, but then comes along in his own right, Mm -hmm. but then is worthy of the hammer. So it's kind of, and then he starts performing things very much like Thor would have without a hammer. He's now, it seems more like a graduation of Norse God of mischief to Norse God of war. And it's all just these little temporal things that don't really have any fundamental change in the movie. But I don't understand how Captain America uses the scepter and then uses a hammer and then throws lightning with the hammer. It seems very much to go with, the Norse hid their god of war by calling him mischief. And the military, the military talks about Murphy. You know, you're, you're the namesake of trouble in all the military. The Norse god of mischief is Murphy. Sun Tzu is the god of war. It very much just seems that Loki is the Norse god of war. And he comes to be, he comes of age in that movie. And then right at the end, Captain America disappears into the past with a hammer and stones and then shows up with a shield 70 years later, but no hammer. Mm-hmm. So all of the disintermediation things make me think that for most Avengers, that what you were seeing as Captain America was actually Loki mm-hmm. incognito. And then basically the way it finishes is he disappears into the past with stones and the hammer sets Captain America on his path and puts the stones back. Like when Loki shows up in the past with Captain America to send him back into the past, he's holding the hammer. So it's not like he can, like, even Loki would be able to say, I'm clearly worthy. I'm holding the hammer. You know what I mean? So it just seems to be a credibility thing. And it was my own, it was my own take on it. And maybe I'm wrong. I don't care. Well, yeah, but I, it is funny how Loki picks up the Tesseract and disappears and then you never hear from him again. And like I said, when you told me that theory, because there were things that I thought were funny, like Captain America couldn't pick up the hammer. Because you're right. There was the character development from the movies. Loki certainly changed for the better. Right. And so you could see how he used to not be worthy, then became worthy. Right. Whereas Captain America, it's not like, oh, finally in this movie, he steps up to defend Earth. No, he's been doing it all along. Like, why couldn't he pick up the hammer before? What changed? And the whole scepter thing is really just what threw me. The only Mm -hmm. person who zonked people out with the scepter was Loki. Mm -hmm. And they all happened within five minutes of you. I went and saw it three times just to make sure I wasn't losing my mind. Like, wait Mm -hmm. a minute, that all happens. Captain America is in the elevator and then... Loki disappears and then he zonks somebody out. That's all five minutes. Yeah. That's all five minutes of the movie. And right before Captain America goes in the, in the, in the elevator, Loki literally turns into Captain America to mock him. And I'm like, Oh, come on. Right. That's what I was saying that they're kind of giving you hints. Mm -hmm. And like I said, the clear one is the old Captain America from that time from was it 2014 says, I have eyes on Loki and you're thinking, Oh no, he thinks it's Loki. That's why he's not freaking out. When what if they're actually saying no? It actually is him, you idiots. We're tricking you. We're doing like a triple cross. That's what I came up with, and it the it just makes to me it makes more sense than Captain America doing all of that. Like, mm-hmm. what? Why doesn't Captain America show up old with a hammer and a shield? Well, I don't get why he had the shield because that he lost it in the battle, and then the old timeline would have needed it for all the other Marvel movies. The old timeline had it. Tony gave him a new shield in the movie. He shows up with the car and they're arguing. He yeah, but wasn't up. that the one he took from, uh, what do you call it, the Civil War? At, at a Tony certain, got it. At a certain point, there's more than one shield. And, like, 
it, when you go back, the shield might survive. But either way, he doesn't show up with a hammer. Right. So at a certain point, I'm just thinking Loki shows up, finally grows up, and he gets to keep the little one as the little brother. And it, it, it mm-hmm. seemed to make a lot more sense to me. And I just thought everybody should have, a, yes. have another look. So for some of you, you might not have agreed with the uh, become your own representative, but you're glad you listened to this because uh, now you're like, oh, that totally makes sense. That's right. All right. I'm good with the war thing. So I feel qualified to uh, to take a to take artistic license with Loki's movements. <laughs> <laughs> OK, Donnie. Well, this has been a very illuminating and interesting conversation. So thanks for being a part of the Bob Murphy show. And uh, we hope that people check out your work, whether they endorse your exact particular stance. I think it's worthwhile for people to hear your thoughts. So thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Um, John McAfee is actually McAfee, however it's pronounced. He's doing uh, his 2020 campaign is like nobody 2020. It's about half of what I'm saying anyway. Uh-huh. So I'm starting to see certain ideas like this pop up. And him being a tech guy, right. you know, if, so yeah, I guess if somebody who's close to John is hearing this episode and thinks it's, uh, it's worthy, you know, maybe you can say that, hey, you, you know, you should really listen to this episode. Yep. All right. Great. Thanks, Donnie. Thank you very much, Bob. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.